You reconnecting with your friends? Look, I'm not hassling anybody. I did my time. I'm legit now. Now, bad cops are never legit. Once bad, always bad. Like a whore. She may give up the business, but she'll always be somebody who got dicks up her ass for money. Am I right? I just want to get a job, something going, get on with my life. How's the guy you beat the crap out of, Nick, you got busted for? I heard he had brain damage or something. Come on, please. Nick wasn't going to give Call the I'm innocent speech. A shield like this would never believe it, and it'd only rile him up more. Call turned to Vaughn, who was concentrating way too much on his salad. And who is your little friend here? What's your name? Vaughn swallowed, looking guilty as sin. Jimmy Shale. What do you do for a living, Jimmy? Can you ask me that? I can ask you what you beat off to at night. I can ask you where your boyfriend likes you to kiss him. I can ask general contracting and construction. For who? A bunch of companies. Most guys I ask, they give me a straight answer. They say, Helmsley or Franklin Development. You say, a bunch of people. Well, officer, detective. Vaughn was leaning back and staring up coldly now attitude flowing from his eyes. Well, officer detective, the fact is I work for a lot of people because I'm good at my job and a lot of people want me. And I'm not real happy the way you're talking to me. Really? And your happiness counts why, Jimmy? Nick had been thinking the worst that could happen was that the cop would find Vaughn's gun, bust him, and then word would get back to Nick's P.O. that they'd been together, and there'd be a hearing, and Nick might very well get his ass kicked back inside for the violation. But there was one step past worse. Vaughn would decide Call had pushed him too far, and would pistol whip him, or even empty five blunt thirty-eight slugs into the asshole detective's body. No, four into his body, and one into his face, just in case he was wearing a vest. Nick tried. Look, Vince, let's just take this down a notch, okay? I'm- Shut up, Corelli. Leaning toward Vaughn. You, asshole. Let me see some ID. ID, ID, sure. Vaughn, that weird grin on his face, wiped his fat lips with his napkin and placed it back in his lap. Then he started to reach for his pocket. I'll show you some goddamn ID. Yes, he was going for his gun. Call was dead, and so was Nick. He assessed angles. From the depth of the booth, he couldn't leap forward and wrestle the gun from Vaughn's hand. If he shouted to Call that Vaughn was armed, he'd be admitting he knew. Vaughn started to rise, hand near the piece. But just then, a staticky voice crackled from Call's belt. All units, 1030, carjacking in progress. 4184th Avenue, Bay Ridge, two black males, 20s, believed to be armed, silver Toyota, late model, no tags at this point. Shit. The cop was looking out the window. The address was virtually across the street. He yanked the radio off his belt. Detective 7875 at the scene of the 1030 Bay Ridge, send backup, K. Roger 7875, two RMPs en route, ETA four minutes, K. Nick lost the rest of the transmission. The detective was headed outside, hand on his weapon. He pushed out the door, turned left, and vanished from sight.
Freddy, head down, entered before the door closed. He stormed up to them. Come on, you guys, get out, now! He tossed two twenties on the table. Vaughn leapt from the booth, Nick behind him, and they followed Freddy through the kitchen and out the back door into a pungent, trash-filled alley. This way, Nick said to Freddy. You called it in? You did that? Had to do something. Didn't look good, whatever was going down. We gotta move, though. He'll find out it was fake in about five minutes. They'll trace you, Vaughn said. A burner. Jesus, you think I was born yesterday? They walked into a backyard and kept going west. Freddy said, look for a gypsy cab, not metered, a gypsy. The hell happened? The shield recognized me, Nick said. Gave me some lip. Would have been okay, only, only our boy here's got a piece. Yeah, so? Vaughn was defensive. Freddy turned on him, furious. What? I told Art, no weapons, period. My man here just got out. Art didn't say nothing to me, I don't know. I was meeting some stranger in the ridge, I'm not stupid. Well, you're stupid enough to get mandatoried one year in Rikers for the peace. How'd that sit with you? All right, all right. He get your name? Freddy asked Vaughn. No, Nick said. But he'll come back looking. And he does have your descript, Vaughn. And he knows me. Ditch the peace, and I mean now, in the water. These things cost money, Freddy said. No, I don't trust you. Give it to me. I'll do it myself. Man, you want me to call Art? Shit. He handed over the gun which Freddy took in a wad of tissue. It's cold? Freddy asked. Yeah, yeah, it can't be traced. Freddy asked. You got the list, Nick? Yeah, Freddy said. Thanks for that, Vaughn, but now, separate ways. I didn't get my meal. Jesus! Vaughn grimaced and started off along the dark sidewalk. I'm going to the bay. Get rid of this. Freddy tapped his pocket. Thanks, man. You're the best. The list look good? It's something good start. I'll just have to do a little more detective work. Hell, you were a detective. Piece of cake. Thanks, Freddy. Man, I owe you. Big. A faint smile. Freddy touched his forehead, a half salute, then headed west to the shore, where he'd pitched the gun into the narrows. A few minutes later, Nick found a gypsy cab. They were more plentiful in the outer burrows since medallion cabs were harder to find. He settled into the seat and inhaled deeply. Then his phone hummed and he panicked, thinking the detective from the restaurant was following up and wanted him to come downtown. But he looked at the caller ID. Felt a thud in his gut, all right. Though a different sort than the kind he'd just experienced. He answered. Amelia, hi. Chapter 36 Rhyme and Archer sat in their chairs before the evidence boards. They were alone. The speculation, the guesswork, the suppositions had gone on for several hours, several extremely unproductive hours, before the team called it quits for the night. Pulaski and Cooper were gone. Sachs was in the hallway making a phone call. Her voice was low, and he wondered whom she was speaking to. Her face looked grave. The shooting incident at the mall seemed resolved largely in her favor. What else could it be? She ended her call and walked back into the parlor, offering nothing about the conversation. She didn't remove her Glock. Again, she'd be staying in Brooklyn. Sachs pulled her jacket off a hook. Better go. She glanced at Archer, then back to Rhyme and seemed about to say something. Rhyme cocked an eyebrow, the equivalent of a taciturn man, which he was, saying, talk to me, what is it? 
a moment of debate within Sachs. Then she balked, snagged her purse, slung it over her shoulder, and nodded farewell. I'll be back early. See you then. Night, Amelia, Archer said. Night. Sachs strode into the hallway, and Rhyme heard the front door as it opened and closed. He turned back toward Archer. Had she fallen asleep? Her eyes were closed. Then they opened. She said, frustrating, looking at the board. Yes, loose ends, too many of them. This riddle's not that easy. You figured it out? Ours? The letter E. You didn't cheat? No, you wouldn't. You're a scientist. The process is the most important part of solving a problem. The answer's almost secondary. This was true. She added, but I'm not speaking of the case, the frustration in general. The life of the disabled, she meant. And she was right. Everything takes longer. People treat you like pets or children. There's so much in life that's not accessible, in all senses, more than just second floors and restrooms. Love, friendship, careers you otherwise would have been perfect for. The list goes on and on. He'd noted her struggling with the phone not long before, trying to call her brother for a ride back to his apartment. The unit was on speaker, but not recognizing her commands. She'd given up and used the controller with her right hand, angrily entering the digits. Her Celtic bracelet jangling with each number. Her jaw had been trembling by the time she got through. You fall into a rhythm, he said, and you learn, you plan ahead. You take the route where you minimize frustrations. You don't need to make unnecessary challenges for yourself. Most stores are accessible, but you learn which ones have narrow aisles and protruding end caps and you avoid them. Things like that. A lot to learn, she said, then seemed uncomfortable with the topic. She said, oh, Lincoln, you play chess. I did, haven't for a long time. How did you know? He didn't own a physical chess set. When he played, he did so online. You've got Vukovic's book, Art of Attack. He glanced at the bookshelf. It was at the far end, where the personal, not forensic, books were kept. He himself couldn't read the spine from here, but he recalled that eyesight and fingernails were among her God-given strengths. She said, when we were together, my ex and I played quite a bit. We did bullet chess. It's a form of speed chess. Each player has a total of two minutes to make a move. Per move? No, the entire game, first move to last. Well, she was an aficionado of an esoteric form of chess as well as being a riddle mistress not to mention well on her way to being a damn good criminalist. Rhyme could not have asked for a more interesting intern. He said, I never played that. I like some time to strategize. He missed the game. There was no one to play with. Tom had no time. Sachs had no patience. Archer continued. We also played a limited move variant. Our goal was to win in 25 moves or fewer. If we didn't, we both lost. Say, if you'd like to play sometime... I don't know anybody who's really into it. Maybe, sometime. He was looking at the evidence charts. My brother won't be here for 15 minutes or so. I heard that. So? Archer said, a coy lilt to her voice. I can't hold two pieces behind my back for you to pick black or white, but I won't cheat. I'm thinking of a number one through ten, even or odd. Rhyme looked her over, not understanding at first. Oh, I haven't played for years. Anyway, I don't have a board. Who needs a board? Can't you picture one? You play in your head? 
Of course. Well, he was silent for a moment. She persisted. Even or odd? Odd. It's seven. You win the virtual toss. Rhyme said. I'll take white. Good. I prefer defense. I like to learn as much about my opponent as I can, before I trounce them. The gold Celtic bracelet clinked against the controller as her fingers maneuvered her chair close to his and faced him, about three feet away. He asked. No time limit, you said. No, but the game has to result in a mate or draw, in which case black wins, in 25 moves or fewer. Otherwise, we both lose. We both lose. Now, she closed her eyes. I'm seeing the board. For you? Rhyme continued to gaze at her face for a moment. The freckles, the narrow brows, the faint smile. She opened her eyes. He looked away quickly and closed his, nestled his head back in the rest. The chessboard, fully loaded, was as clear as Central Park on a crisp spring afternoon as today's had been. He thought for a moment. E2 pawn to E4, Archer said. Black pawn E7 to E5. He shot back. White king's knight to F3. Archer. Black queen's knight to C6. You're seeing it clearly? Yes. Well, she certainly was aggressive. Rhyme was pleased. No uncertainty. No hemming or hawing. He said, White king's bishop to C4. Archer snapped. Black queen's knight to D4. Her knight was now nestling between Rhyme's bishop and pawn. How many moves were they up to, he wondered. Six moves, Archer said, unknowingly responding to his question. He said, White king's knight takes black pawn on e5. Ah, yes, yes, Archer then said. Black queen to g5, bringing her most powerful piece into the middle of the field, vulnerable. Rhyme was tempted to open his eyes and see her expression. He opted for concentration. Rhyme saw an opportunity. White king's knight takes black pawn on f7. In position to take a rook, and safe from her king because the piece was guarded by his bishop. Black queen takes white pawn on g2. Rhyme frowned. He'd have to abandon his tactics in the upper right-hand corner of the board. Her brash moves were bringing the assault to his home territory, with most of his pieces not even in play. He said, White king's rook to f1. Archer's buoyant voice said, Black queen takes white pawn on e4, check. Eyes still closed, Rhyme could clearly see where this was going. He chuckled and said what he had to. White king's bishop to e2 to block the check. And there was no surprise when Juliet Archer said, Black queen's knight to f3, checkmate. Rhyme studied the board tucked into his mind. Fourteen moves, I think. That's right, Archer confirmed. Is that a record? Oh no, I've won in nine. My ex in eight. The game, it was elegant. Lincoln Rhyme was a loser gracious on the surface, but filled with knobby resolve not to be one again. A rematch soon? After he'd practiced. Love to. But now, the bar's open. Tom! She laughed. You're teaching me forensics. You're teaching me how to be a productive gimp. But I think you're also teaching me some bad habits. I'll pass. You're not driving, Rhyme said. Well, not exactly. A nod at the Stormarrow motor. 
which could propel her along the pavement at a zippy seven miles per hour. Better keep a clear head anyway. I'm seeing my son tonight. Tom poured Rhymes Glenmorangie and glanced at Archer, who shook her head. The doorbell hummed. It was Archer's brother, who when Tom escorted him into the parlor, greeted them cheerfully. He seemed like a nice guy. Fellow was the word that fit. Rhyme wouldn't want to spend much time with him, but he seemed the rock that his sister would need facing her life as a quad. She wheeled toward the archway. I'll be back early tomorrow, she said, echoing Sax's farewell. He nodded. She wheeled out the door, her brother behind her. The door closed. Rhyme was suddenly aware of the immense silence of the room. He had a curious feeling. Hollowness was the word that came to him. Tom was back in the kitchen. The sound of metal against metal, wood against ceramic, water filling pots emanated from there into the parlor. But no sound of human voices. Unusual for him, Rhyme didn't care for this manifestation of solitude. A sip of the scotch. Rhyme was aware of the scent of garlic, meat, and the perfume of vermouth heated. Something else, too. A fragrant smell. Appealing, comforting. Ah, Sax's perfume. But then he recalled that she didn't wear any. Why give the perp a clue as to your position in a potential firefight? No, the scent would have to be that, of course, of whatever Juliet Archer had worn that day. Dinner is served, Tom said. On my way, Rhyme said and left the parlor, instructing the controller to shut out the lights as he did so. He wondered if the voice-controlled lighting system in the townhouse happened to be embedded with a data-wise 5,000. Chapter 37 Just a fast one. Honey, no, her husband persisted. Twenty minutes. Arnie said he's got a new scotch from the Isle of Skye. Never heard of it before. If there was a scotch that Henry was unfamiliar with, it must have been something. They'd finished dinner, Ginny surprised that he'd actually complimented her on the chicken fricassee, though there had been good fix over last time, dear, and she was rinsing dishes. You go, Ginny told him. Carol wanted you to come too. They're starting to think you don't like them. I don't, Ginny thought. While she and Henry were transplants to the Upper East Side, Arnie and Carol were natural products of the effete neighborhood. She found these neighbors up the hall arrogant and pretentious. I really don't want to. I've got to clean up here. There's that project for work. Just 30, 45 minutes. Double what it had been a moment ago. Of course, there was more to this than a neighborly visit. Arnie was the head of a small tech startup, and Henry wanted him as a client for his law firm. Her husband didn't admit it, but this was obvious to her. She knew, too, that he liked to have Ginny accompany him as he tried to win over people like Arnie, and not because she was smart and funny, but because of what she'd overheard him say once to a fellow attorney when he didn't know she was nearby. Let's face it, a potential client's on the borderline, who's he going to sign with? The partner with the wife he can fantasize about screwing. The absolute last thing that Ginny wanted to do, go have drinks with the Bassets. He'd probably make her try the scotch, which, however expensive, all tasted like dish soap to her. But we just got Trudy down. The two-year-old could be a fitful sleeper, and sometimes impossible to get to fall asleep at a reasonable hour. 
Tonight, the 7 p.m. target had been a bullseye. We've got the nanny. But still, you know I don't like leaving her. 45 minutes, an hour, just to say hi, sip a little whiskey. Did you know about the spelling? Whiskey with an E is bourbon, Irish too. Without it, it is scotch. Who thought that up? Henry was oh so good at deflecting. Really, can't we take a pass, honey? No, Henry said, grit to his voice. I told them yes, so go scoot and throw something on. It's just drinks, Ginny said, glancing at her jeans and sweatshirt, then realizing she'd caved. Henry turned his handsome face toward her. Yeah, yeah, they were the perfect-looking couple. Ah, for me, honey, please, that little blue thing. Gautier. Thing. He gave her a seductive wink. You know I like it. Ginny went into the bedroom and changed, peeked at their daughter still asleep, an angel with golden ringlets of hair, and then walked silently to the window, which faced a quiet side street one flight below. Made sure the window was locked, though she'd checked it earlier, and drew the shades. Curiously, Trudy might wake up at the sound of a cooing pigeon on the sill, but would sleep through a fire engine siren and blaring intersection horn. She wanted to kiss the girl, or touch her cheek, but that might wake her and disrupt the impromptu get-together. Henry wouldn't be happy. Of course, if the child were to wake, that would be an excuse for Ginny not to go. Yes, no. But she couldn't do it. Use her daughter as a ploy against her husband. Still, she smiled to herself, thinking it had been a good plan. Five minutes later, they were up the dimly lit hall, ringing the Bassett's doorbell. The door opened. Cheeks were bust, hands gripped, pleasantries exchanged. Carol Bassett was in jeans and t-shirt. Ginny's eyes dipped to the outfit, then to Henry, but he missed the telling glance and accompanying grimace of her thin, glossy lips. The men veered to the bar where the magic potion sat, and thank goodness, Carol apparently remembered that Ginny drank wine exclusively and thrust a Pinot Gris into her hand. They clinked, sipped, and headed into the living room, which offered a partial view of Central Park. Henry was resentful that the Bassets, new to the building, had happened to decide to move here just as that particular unit became vacant. Henry's and Ginny's faced plebeian 81st Street. The men rejoined their mates. Ginny, you want to try some? Sure she will. She loves scotch. And palm olive is my favorite brand, right next to Duz. Already have wine. Don't want to spoil the experience. You sure? Arnie said. Cost 800 a bottle. And that's because my guy got me a deal. And I mean deal. Carol said in a low voice, eyes wide. He got us a Petrus for a thousand. Henry barked a laugh. You are shitting me. Cross my heart. Ginny noted her husband glance at the spot on her body where Carol was doing just that. It was just a t-shirt, yes, but quite tight and made of thin silk. Arnie, the Petrus, it was heaven. I nearly came. He pretended to look shocked at his own words. Listen to this. We bribed the maitre d' to let us sneak it into Romanet. They don't have a corkage policy, you know. I didn't, Ginny said with mock astonishment. Oh, my God, Arnie added. I know, a restaurant like that. The couple sat and conversation meandered. Carol asked about Trudy and the schools they had planned for her, 
Not as outrageous as it seemed, Jenny had learned. Manhattan parents must plan early for their offspring's education. The Bassetts were a few years younger, early thirties, and were just thinking about children now. Carol added, Next year sounds good. For conceiving, I mean. It'll be a convenient time. The company's putting a new maternity leave plan in place. A friend of mine in HR told me about it. He said he wasn't supposed to say anything, but I should wait to get pregnant. She laughed wickedly. It's sort of like insider trading. And studied Ginny's face to see if she got the risque joke. Got it, and stepped on it till it was dead. Have to give up the wine, Carol had said. That'll be hard. You won't miss it. Only 18 months. 18? Carol asked. Breastfeeding. Oh, that. Well, it's pretty much optional nowadays, isn't it? The men talked about business and Washington, and all the while examined their glasses as if the amber liquid inside were unicorn blood. Carol rose, saying she wanted to show off a new print she'd gotten from her favorite gallery in Soho. Ginny wondered, how many galleries did she have? They were halfway across the living room when a man's voice intruded, Hi there, little one. Everyone froze, looking around. Aren't you a cute little petunia? The baritone words oozed from the speaker of Ginny's phone sitting on the coffee table. Her wine glass tumbled to the floor and shattered into a hundred pieces, and she lunged for the Samsung. Arnie said, Wasn't the Waterford? Don't worry. What is that? Carol asked, nodding to the phone. It was what Henry and Ginny called the nanny, actually a state-of-the-art baby monitor. The microphone was next to Trudy's crib and sensitive enough to pick up the child's breathing and heartbeat, and could also pick up the voices of anyone in the room. You're coming with me, honey bun. I know somebody who wants to give you a whole new home. Ginny screamed. She and Henry bolted for the door, flung it open, and sprinted down the hall, followed by the Bassets. Henry raged at her. Did you lock the freaking window? Yes, yes, yes. Stay asleep, little one. Ginny's mind was a swirling tornado. Tears streamed, and her heart vibrated in her chest. She lifted her phone and touched voice on the monitor app. She shouted into the microphone. It was a two-way system. The police are here, you son of a bitch. Don't you touch her. I'll kill you if you touch her. A pause, as perhaps the intruder was noticing the monitor. He chuckled. Police? Really? I'm looking out Trudy's right window, and there's not a cop to be found. Better be going. Sorry, your little dear's still snoozing. I'll have to say goodbye for her. Bye-bye, Mommy. Bye-bye, Daddy. Ginny screamed again. Then, now, now, open the door! Henry fumbled the keys, and Ginny ripped them out of his hand, shoving him aside. She unlatched the door and pushed it in. She detoured into the kitchen to grab the first butcher knife in the block and charged to her daughter's room, swung it open, flipped the overhead light on. Trudy stirred slightly at the intrusion, but didn't wake. Henry pushed inside an instant later, and they both scanned the small room. No one. The window is still locked, and the closet was empty. But she handed the husband the knife and picked up and clutched her child. Arnie and Carol were right behind them. Relief flooded their faces seeing the baby girl. Is he here? 
Carol asked in a tremulous voice, looking around. But Arnie, the high-tech entrepreneur, was shaking his head, picking up the monitor near Trudy's crib. No, he's not. He could be a hundred miles away. He hacked into the server. He set the device back onto the table. So he could hear us now? Ginny cried, shutting it off. Arnie said, that doesn't always cut the connection. He unplugged it and added, people do it just to mess with you. Sometimes if there's a video monitor, they do screenshots of the kids or videos and post them online. What kind of sicko would do that? I don't know what kind. I just know how many. A lot of them. Arnie asked. You want me to call the police? I'll take care of that, Ginny said. Just leave, please. Henry said. Honey, really? Glancing at his friends. Now, she snapped. Sure. Really sorry, Carol said. She embraced Ginny with what seemed to be true concern. And... Arnie offered. Don't worry about the wine glass. After they were gone, Ginny took the knife once more and carrying still snoozing Trudy checked every room, Henry with her. Yes, all the windows were locked. There could have been no physical intrusion. Back in their bedroom, Ginny sat on the bed, wiped tears and fiercely cradled her daughter. She glanced up and saw her husband dial three numbers on his mobile. No, she half rose and took it from him, hit disconnect. What are you doing? He snapped. She said, it's going to ring in a minute. 911 will call back. You tell them you hit it by mistake. The hell would I do that for? If I talk to them, a woman, they'll think it's a domestic and might send somebody anyway. You have to tell them it was a mistake. Are you crazy? Henry raged. We want them to send somebody. We got hacked. That asshole messed up our evening. The police are not going to hear that we left our daughter alone to go drink some overpriced liquor with two idiots just because you want a new client. Do you really think that's a good idea, Henry? The phone rang. No caller ID number. She handed the unit to him, glared into his eyes. He sighed and hit accept call. Hello, he answered pleasantly. Oh, I'm really sorry. 911 is first on my speed dial. I hit it by mistake, calling my mother. She's number two. Yes, it's Henry Sutter. He gave the address, apparently in response to another question. I'm really sorry. Appreciate your following up like this, though. Good night. Ginny walked into Trudy's nursery and one-handed pulled the crib after her into the guest room. I'll sleep here tonight. I think we should... She closed the door. Ginny tucked her daughter into the crib, nearly, but not quite, smiling that the girl had managed to sleep through the excitement. She pulled off the thousand-dollar dress and angrily flung it into the corner of the room. Then she climbed into bed without moisturizing her face or brushing her teeth. She shut out the light, knowing that, unlike for her daughter, sleep would be a long time in coming tonight, if at all. But that was okay. She had lots to think about. Most important, what she would say to the lawyer tomorrow, the one she'd talked to a couple of times about the possibility of divorce. Until tonight, she'd waffled. Tomorrow, she would be telling him to proceed as quickly and as relentlessly and brutally as he could. Chapter 38 
Unprofessional, I guess. But sometimes you do things for yourself because you have to. I'm walking away from the Upper East Side coffee shop near Henry and Virginia Sutter's apartment. I was across the street. It was some building, I'll tell you. Can't imagine living in a place like that. Wouldn't want to, probably. Beautiful people live there. I wouldn't be welcome. A den of shoppers. Doing things for yourself. It was all pretty easy. Visiting vengeance on the shopper. I'd simply followed Henry home from the Starbucks in Times Square where we'd collided that afternoon. You'd spilled this on me. It would cost you big time, you walking dead asshole. This shirt cost more than you make in a month. I'm a lawyer. Once I found his address, I cross-referenced deeds with DMV pictures. I got his ID. Mr. Henry Sutter, married to Virginia. I was stymied briefly. Data mining records didn't show they own anything with a CIR DataWise 5000 inside. And then I peeked at Facebook. Henry and Ginny, her preferred Nick, had actually posted pictures of two-year-old Trudy. Fools. But good for me. Babies in the city equal baby monitors. And yep, a simple scan of the house revealed the IP address and a brand name. I executed a handshake exploit with the network, then ran Passbreaker on my tablet, and in no time at all, I was in. Listening to Trudy's soft breath, and coming up with a script for my conversation with a young'un that was sure to destroy mom's and dad's peace of mind for the immediate future, opens up a world of possibilities. After all, I'm not wedded to the DataWise 5000 idea. Other options are good, too. I keep walking, loping, really. I pass by the subway entrance. It's a long way to Chelsea, but I have to use Shank's mare, my mother's mother's expression, even though I don't think she ever saw a mare in the flesh or walked more than a few hundred feet from car to her Indiana Piggly Wiggly. I'm worried about getting recognized. Those damn CCTVs everywhere. What about dinner, I wonder? Two, no, three sandwiches tonight. Then I'll work on my new miniature project, a boat. I don't usually make them. There's a whole world of seafaring model makers, like airplane and train people. This obsession with transportation has bloated the field. But Peter said he liked boats, so I'm making a worn skiff for him. Classic rowboat with reciprocating oars. Then maybe Alicia will come over. She's been upset lately, the past returning. The scars, the inside scars, aching. I'm doing what I can to make it better. But sometimes I just don't know. Then I'm thinking again of the fun I've just had, recalling his face earlier in the day, all sneery and handsome, after we collided outside of Starbucks, walking dead. Well, Henry, that's a good line, clever, but I'm thinking of a better one. It has to do with the last laugh. Hey, Amelia Sachs walked inside Nick Corelli's apartment. Sparse, but clean, ordered. He got a TV. When they were together, Sachs recalled, they'd never owned one. Too much else to do. I've been watching some of the cop shows. You watch those? No. Too much to do now, too. They ought to do a show about you and Lincoln. He's been approached. He said no. She handed him the big cardboard moving box she'd brought. It contained some of his personal effects from when they lived together. Yearbooks, postcards, letters, hundreds of family photos. She'd called him to say she'd found these things in her basement, thought he'd want them. Thanks, 
He opened it up, rifled through the contents. I thought this stuff was gone for good. Hey, look. Nick held up a photo. Our first family vacation. Niagara Falls. The family of four. The classic cascade behind them and a rainbow from the particles of water. Nick was about ten, Donnie seven. Who took it? Some other tourists. Remember pictures back then? You had to have them developed. Always tense when you got them back from the drugstore. Were they in focus, the right exposure? He nodded, more foraging. Oh, hey! He picked up a program. New York City Police Academy graduation ceremony. At the bottom was the date he'd graduated. The cover featured a seal. Training Bureau. Preparing the finest. His smile faded. Sachs was recalling her own graduation ceremony. That had been one of the two times in her life when she'd worn white gloves. The other had been at the police department memorial, honoring her father after his death. Nick put the program back in the box, gazing at it fondly for a moment. He closed the carton up and asked, Glass of wine? Sure. He stepped into the kitchen and returned with a bottle of wine and a beer. He poured her a glass of Chardonnay. Another memory of the two of them triggered by the smell and the tap of metal on glass and his fingers brushing hers. Boom. She shot the recollection dead. She'd been doing a lot of sniping like this lately. They sipped the oaky wine and the beer, and he showed her around the place, though there wasn't much to see. He'd gotten some furniture out of storage, picked up a few things, borrowed from cousins, bought on the cheap, some books, several boxes of documents, and then there were the case files of People of the State of New York v. Nicholas J. Corelli. The many documents were spread out on the kitchen table. Sachs looked over the framed pictures of his family. She liked it that he had them on the mantelpiece for all to see. Sachs had spent a lot of time with his mother and father and had enjoyed their company. She thought, too, about Donnie. He lived in BK, not far from Nick. After he was arrested, Sachs made an effort to keep up with the Corellis. Nick's mother in particular. Eventually, though, the contact grew wispier and finally ceased altogether. As often happens when the fulcrum of common connection between two people vanishes, or one of them goes to prison. Nick poured more wine. Just a little, I'm driving. How do you like the Torino versus the Camaro? Prefer the Chevy, but it got turned into a cube of metal. Hell, how'd that happen? Sachs explained about the perp who worked for a data mining company and had invaded every part of his victims' lives, including hers. Having the beautiful Camaro SS towed and pressed into scrap had been as simple for him as tying his shoes. You nailed him? We did, Lincoln and I. There was a pause. Then, can I say, I liked seeing Rose. I wasn't sure she believed me about my brother, what really happened. No, we talked later. She believed you. From what you said before, I thought she'd look sicker. She was pretty good. There are women who won't go out of the house without, quote, putting their face on. That's her healthy complexion, Maybelline. Nick sipped the beer. You believe me, don't you? Sachs cocked her head. About Donnie and everything, you never said. Sachs gave him a smile. I wouldn't have given you the file if I didn't. I wouldn't be here now. Thank you. Nick looked down at the carpet, which
which was worn in a particular configuration that she attributed to heels of the shoes worn by a heavy person's outstretched legs. She remembered when they would sit on the couch. Yes, this very couch. It had a slip cover on it back then. But she could tell from the shape that it was the same. He put the carton of artifacts away. How's the case coming? The guy screwing around with the appliances, which is pretty sick, by the way. The case? Slow. He's smart, this perp, she sighed. These controllers, they're in everything now. Our computer crimes contact said there'll be 25 billion embedded products in a few years. Embedded? Smart controllers. Stoves, refrigerators, boilers, alarm systems, home monitors, medical equipment. All of them with Wi-Fi or Bluetooth computers in them. He can hack into a pacemaker and shut it off. Jesus. You saw what happened with the escalator. I'm taking stairs now. Nick wasn't making a joke, it seemed. He added, I saw a thing in the paper about what he's doing, about how these companies should fix their servers or something, in the cloud, to keep them out. Not all of them are doing it. You see that? She laughed. I'm responsible. What? I tipped a reporter off. There's a security patch that'll make it impossible for the unsub to hack into the controllers, but not everybody's installing it, looks like. I didn't see a press conference from 1PP. Well, I didn't exactly share I was doing it. Going through channels would have taken too long. Some things in policing never change. She lifted her wine glass to that. Domestic terrorism? That's his agenda? The way it's looking. Ted Kaczynski sort. After a moment, Nick asked, How's he doing? Who? Your friend, Lincoln Rhyme. Healthy as can be expected. There are always risks. She told him about some of them, including potentially fatal dysreflexia, the rapid spike in blood pressure that can lead to stroke, brain damage, and death. But he takes good care of himself. He exercises. What? How can he do that? It's called FES, Functional Electrical Stimulation. Electrodes in the muscles. Fifty shades of gray. Oh, hell, sorry. That was way out of line. He seemed to be blushing. Not a typical feat for Nick Corelli. Sachs smiled. Lincoln doesn't have pop culture on his compass much, but if he knew what the book is or the movie, he'd laugh and say, hell yes. He's got a sense of humor about his condition. Hard for you? Me? Yep. I saw the movie with a girlfriend. It was pretty bad. Nick laughed. She chose not to speak anymore about rhyme and herself. Sachs rose and poured more wine sipped, feeling the warmth around her face. She looked at her mobile. 9 p.m. What have you found? Nodding at the case file. Some good leads. Solid. Still a lot of work to do. Funny, it's just as hard to prove you're innocent as it is to make a case against a perp. I thought it'd be easier. You're being careful? Got my buddy, the one I told you about, doing most of the legwork. I'm bulletproof. What was said about him when he'd been on the force? Bulletproof. Sachs remembered Nick being not only a good cop, but a risk taker. Anything to save a victim. They were a lot alike in that way. You want, he began. What? Some dinner? You eating already? She shrugged. I could use something. Only problem, I didn't get to Whole Foods. You ever shop at Whole Foods? Once, I felt the need to spend $8 for a fruit salad. She laughed. He continued. 
I've got frozen curry in the freezer. D'Agostino's. It's not bad. No. But I'll bet it'll be better if we heat it up. And she poured herself another glass of wine. What is that noise? The 66-year-old, soon-to-retire printing press operator was in the hallway of his apartment building, a decades-old, workaday dwelling typical of this unglamorous part of New York City. He was walking unsteadily after a drink or two at Sadie's. Nearly midnight. He'd been thinking that Joey from the bar was a dick, the politics and all. But at least he didn't insult you. You said, I'm voting this way or that. It had been fun to argue with him. But his recollection of the evening, and its four drinks or five, faded as he slowed to a stop and listened to the sound coming from the apartment he was now walking past. Edwin Boyle stopped walking and leaned closer to the door. TV. Had to be TV. But even with the new sets, the new sound systems, TV sounded different from this. It wasn't the same. Live was live, and this was live. Besides, on TV and in movies, the sound of a couple making love was either short and sweet, and usually there was music, fading to black, or it went on and on and on, like in porn. This was the real thing. Boyle was grinning. Fun. He didn't know the guy whose apartment this was, not very well. Seemed decent, if quiet. Wasn't the sort to hang out at Sadie's and get into talks about politics or anything else. Had that same kind of quiet you saw in private eyes, at least in the movies. The printer had never known a private eye. Now the woman was whispering something. The rhythm was faster. The man was saying something too. And Boyle was wondering, if he made a recording, who would he send it to? Well, of course, dirty old Tommy on the board cutter. Ginger in accounting. She was always talking about sex and flirting. Jose in receivables. Boyle pulled out his phone and edged close to his neighbor's door, then recorded the sound show, smiling to himself. Who else would appreciate it? Well, he'd think about it. But he sure wouldn't send the recording to anyone tonight, not after a few hours at Sadie's. He might end up sending it to his ex or his son by mistake. Tomorrow, at work. Finally, his neighbor and whoever his squeeze was sped up and it was over with. A long sigh, which might have been him or might have been her or might have been his imagination. Boyle shut the recorder of his iPhone off and slipped it away. Staggered up the hall to his apartment. He tried to remember the last time he'd been laid and couldn't. That's what seven or eight drinks did to you. But he was sure it was sometime during the previous administration. Saturday, 5, check. Chapter 39, 8 a.m. Amelia Sachs yawned. She was tired, and her head was throbbing. She'd had, to put it mildly, a restless night. No, turbulent. She had left Nick's apartment an hour before and was now in the war room at 1PP, where for the second time in a few days she was reviewing the file of a case that was not on her docket. First it had been Nick's, and now this, a much smaller file, unrelated to his situation. The hour was early, but she'd read it three times already since she'd downloaded it from the archives not long ago, looking for some positive nuggets that might explain what she suspected. Finding none. She looked out the window. 
back to the file which wasn't cooperating in the least. No gold nuggets, no salvation. God damn it. A figure appeared in the doorway. Got your message, Ron Pulaski said. Got down here as soon as I could. Ron. Pulaski walked inside. Empty. Different. He was glancing around the war room. The evidence charts were in the corner, but they were incomplete now that the two cases, Saxes and Rhymes, were in fact just one, and this facility was no longer part of the unsub-40 operation. Sunlight poured in, harsh, at an acute angle. Pulaski looked uneasy. Sometimes he was uncertain, mostly because of the head injury. It had robbed him of confidence, and yes, a little cognitive skill, which he more than made up for in persistence and street instinct. After all, the solutions to most crimes were pretty obvious. Police work was built on sweat more than Holmesian deduction. But today, Sachs knew what the issue was. Sit down, Ron. Sure, Amelia. He gazed at the file open on the table in front of her. He sat. She turned the folder around and pushed it forward. What's this? The young blonde officer asked. Read it. The last paragraph. He scanned the words. Oh, she said. The Gutierrez case was closed six months ago because Enrico Gutierrez died of a drug overdose. If you're going to lie, Ron, couldn't you at least have checked the facts? The phone woke him, humming, not ringing or trilling or playing music, just humming as it sat on his J.C. Penney bedside table. The dream helped. Having kept him near waking, inside he had dreams about being out. Outside he dreamed about his cell. So sleep was watchful, busy as water spiraling down a drain. Hello? Um, hello? Yes, hi. Is this Nick? Yeah, yeah. I didn't wake you, did I? Who's this? Vito. Vittorio Gera, the restaurant. Oh, Sure. Nick swung his feet around, sat up, rubbed his eyes. I wake you? Jera asked again. Yeah, you did, but that's okay, I've got to get up anyway. Ha, <laughs> honest, most people would have said no. But you can always tell, right? They sound groggy. Do I sound groggy? Sort of. Listen, speaking of, you know, being honest, I'll get right to it. Nick, I'm not going to sell the restaurant to you. You had a better offer? I can work on that. What are we talking? It's not the money, Nick. I just don't want to sell to you. I'm sorry. The record? What? Me being in jail. Jera sighed. Yeah, the record. I know you were saying you were innocent, and you know I believe that. You don't seem like a crook. But still, word'll get out. You know how that works. Even rumors, even their lies, you know. I do, Vito. Okay, if that's the way it is. Hey, you had the balls to call me yourself. It wasn't your lawyer calling my lawyer. A lot of people would have handled it that way. Appreciate it. You're an okay guy, Nick. I know things will work out for you. I got a feeling. Sure. Hey, Vito. Yeah? Does this mean I can ask your daughter out? A pause. Nick laughed. I'm messing with you, Vito. Oh, and by the way, a takeout order the other day, my friend said it was the best lasagna they'd ever had. A pause. A guilty pause, probably. You're okay, Nick. You'll do all right. Take care. 
they disconnected. Hell. Sighing, Nick rose and walked stiffly to his dresser, on which his pants lay in a pile. He tugged them on, swapped yesterday's t-shirt for a new one and brushed his hair, more or less. Amelia Sachs had left the apartment an hour before, the footsteps and closing door waking him briefly. He walked into the living room, thoughts of her prominent in his mind as he made a pot of coffee, poured a cup and sat at the kitchen table to wait for it to cool. But then looking over the files she'd given him, images of Amelia, disappointment about the failed restaurant deal were replaced by memories of his days as a cop. Now, like back then, something clicked in his mind when he was starting an investigation. Like turning on a switch, snap, he was in a different mode. Suspicious, for one thing. Sifting, picking out what could be believed and letting the rest sprinkle away. This wasn't hard for Nick Corelli. And more important, making leaps. His mind making those weird leaps. That's what nailed the perps. You told me you drove out to Suffolk. Right, Detective Corelli. That's where I was, seeing my friend. He vouched for me. You talked to him. It's a 110 miles round trip. So? Your gauge when I stopped you showed nearly full. So, again, here's where I say I refilled. You drive a turbo diesel. Here's where I say there's no diesel along the route you say you took. Oh, uh, I want to talk to my lawyer. Making that leap, calling the stations and checking for diesel pumps, was just something that occurred to him naturally. Detective then, detective now. He pulled the list of J names toward him, the people from Flanagan's that Vaughn had said were regulars, one of whom, Nick prayed, could help him turn his life around. Jack Battaglia, Queens Boulevard Auto and Repair. Joe Kelly, Havisham General Contracting, Manhattan. J.J. Steptoe. John Perrone, J&K Financial, Queens. Elton Jenkins. Jackie Carter, You Store at Self Storage, Queens. Mike Johnson, Emerson Consulting, Queens. Jeffrey Dahmer. Gianni Johnny Manetto, Old Country Restaurant Supply, Long Island City. Carter Jepson Jr., Coca-Cola Distribution. He'd never heard of any of them though he was amused to speculate that one in particular surely had had a tough time growing up with a name close enough to a serial killer's for the kids to torment him mercilessly. His cop mind was firing on all cylinders, but that wasn't enough. He needed input, research, so get to work. Nick went online and began to check out the names, Google and Facebook and LinkedIn. He also logged onto the People Finder site Freddie had told him about. Jesus, there was a lot of information. When he was on the force, it would have taken him weeks, not hours, to get all this stuff. And he was astonished, too, at how much people posted about themselves. One guy, J.J. Steptoe, was shown proudly smoking pot in a Facebook picture. A link led to a YouTube video that showed Jepson in the Caribbean staggering around drunk and falling into a pool, then climbing out and puking. As for the wife of J., Nancy, no luck there for any of them. But maybe Mr. J was divorced from Nancy, or Nancy was a girlfriend. There were probably ways to find out, maybe programs at the NYPD that linked people, even if not married or related. If J had done time, there might be a record of a Nancy coming to visit him in prison. But he didn't have access to anything like that, and he sure wasn't going to ask Amelia to search for him. He was already pushing the limits there.
he skimmed the data he'd downloaded. Nick had been hoping Jay was somebody involved in law enforcement, with the knowledge of the hijacking operations back when he'd been arrested. But none of the men were law enforcement. The next best thing, somebody with underworld ties, even though he knew he'd need to be very, very careful about contacting them. That didn't pan out either, though. Jenkins had been arrested, misdemeanor, and a long time ago. Two others had been the subject of civil investigations. SEC in one case, IRS in the other. But nothing came of these. Nick sat back and sipped his lukewarm coffee. A glance at the clock. The work had taken three hours. A ton of info, but nothing to show for it. Okay, think better. Think like a gold shield. Sure, the list could be useless, and Stan Vaughn had pulled together enough random names to buy himself an overbreaded chicken parmesan. But it's all you've got, the lists, so work it. Just like the flimsiest lead on the street, the way you used to do. Turn it into something sweet. He decided to look more carefully into the businesses the men operated or were employed by. Were any of them more likely than others to have a potential connection to hijacking or receiving stolen? Vaughn's list didn't have all of their outfits, but Nick was able to find most of the others. Transportation and wholesale companies were the heart of hijacking operations, but there were none of those. Battaglia's operation was used car sales and repair. Jackie Carter, who owned a franchise of self-storage facilities, seemed like a possibility. And John Perone's J&K Financial Services intrigued him. They might have lent money to any number of people involved in shady deals. And Johnson's consulting business? Who knew what they were up to? Nick took a long slug of tepid coffee. The cup froze in midair. He set it down and sat forward, staring at the list. He laughed. Oh, man, how did I miss it? How the hell did I miss it? He read, John Perone, J&K, Financial, Queens, Fi, Nancy, Ull. Nancy wasn't a wife or girlfriend. It was from the name of his company. The detective's faded notes were to blame for his misreading. Nick was suddenly filled with a thrill he remembered from his days running cases, when you had a breakthrough like this. Okay, Mr. Perone, who exactly are you? He'd found no suggestion of any criminal activity. Perone seemed to be upstanding, a legit businessman, generous, a giver back to the community, active in the church. Still, Nick would have to be careful. He couldn't risk linking his own name with the man's if Perone were in fact involved in any underworld activity. He remembered his promise to Amelia. If there's anybody who can help me, and there's any risk, or even it looks like they're connected, I'll use, you know, an intermediary to contact them, a friend. He found his phone and called Freddy Carruthers. Chapter 40 Ron Pulaski stared at the Gutierrez file sitting between him and Amelia Sachs. He fidgeted in the chair across the table from her in their war room. Hell, why hadn't he checked to see if Gutierrez was still around? There was an answer to that, mostly because he believed nobody would know or care what he was up to. Got that one wrong, didn't I? Hell, Ron, work with me here. What's going on? Have you talked to IA? No, not yet, of course not. 
but he knew that if she'd found he'd committed a crime, she'd report him to internal affairs in an instant. That was something about Amelia. She'd bend regs, but when you stepped over the razor wire of the New York penal code, that was a sin, unforgivable. And so he sat back, sighed, and told her the truth. Lincoln shouldn't quit. She blinked, not understanding where this was going. He could hardly blame her. He shouldn't. It's just wrong. I agree. What does that have to do with anything? Everything. Let me explain. You know what happened. He pushed the Baxter case too far. I know the facts. What? Let me finish, please. Funny about beauty, Pulaski was thinking. Amelia Sachs was no less beautiful than yesterday, but now it was the beauty of ice. He looked past her out the window, unable to stand the beam of her eyes. I checked out the Baxter file. I've read it a thousand times, been through every word of testimony, every sentence of forensic analysis, all the detective's notes. Over and over, I found something that didn't make sense. Pulaski sat forward, and despite the fact that his cover was blown and his mission in peril, Amelia by rights should put an end to it immediately. He felt the rush of being on a hunt that wasn't yet over. Baxter was a criminal, yes? But he was just a rich man screwing over another rich man. At the end of the day, he was harmless. His gun was a souvenir. He didn't have bullets in it. The gunshot residue had ambiguous sources. I know all this, Ron. But you don't know about Odin. Who? Odin. I'm not sure who he is, black, white, age, other than that he's got some connection with the crews in East New York. There was a reference to him in the notes of one of the detectives that ran the Baxter case. Baxter was tight with Odin. I talked to the detective, and he never followed up on Odin because Baxter was killed and the case was dropped. The gang unit narcotics haven't heard the name. He's a mystery man. But I asked in the street, and at least two people said they'd heard about him. He's connected with some new strain of drugs called Catch. You ever hear of it? She shook her head. Maybe he was smuggling it in from Canada or Mexico, maybe financing, maybe even fabricating it. I was thinking that might be the reason Baxter was killed. It wasn't a random prison fight. He was targeted because he knew too much about this stuff. Anyway, I've been working undercover. No, not sanctioned, just on my own. I told people I needed this stuff Odin was making. I was claiming my head injury was really bad. He felt he was blushing. God'll get me for that, but I've got the scar. And? My point was to prove to Lincoln that Baxter wasn't innocent at all. He was working with Odin, financing the fabrication or importing of catch. That maybe Baxter did use his gun. That people were dying because of the shit he was involved in. Pulaski shook his head. And Lincoln would realize that he didn't screw up so bad, and he'd unquit. Why? Didn't I tell anyone? Why make up the story? What would you have said? To give it up, right? An unauthorized undercover op using my own money to score drugs? To what? Only once. I bought some oxy. I dumped it in the sewer five minutes later. But I needed to make the buy. I had to build some street cred. I dropped a weapons charge to get some banger to vouch for me. I'm walking the line here, Amelia. He looked at the Gutierrez file. Stupid, thinking, why didn't I check it? I'm close, I'm really close. I paid 2,000 bucks for a lead to this Odin. I've got a feeling it's gonna work out. You know what Lincoln would say about feelings. Has he said anything? Now he's helping on odd sub 40, getting back to work for the NYPD? No. 
He told me nothing's changed, she grimaced. He's working with us mostly to make a civil case for Sandy Fromer. Pulaski's own face remained stony. I wish you hadn't found out about this, Amelia. But now you know. Only I'm not stopping. I'll tell you right up front, I've got to play this out. I'm not letting him retire without a fight. East New York, that's where this Odin hangs. And Brownsville and Bed-Stuy, the most dangerous parts of the city. Gramercy Park is just as dangerous if that's where you get shot. She smiled. I can't talk you out of this? No. Then I'll forget all about it on one condition. You don't agree, I'll report you and get your ass suspended for a month. What condition? I don't want you on this alone. You go to meet Odin, I want somebody with you. Anybody you know who can back you up? Pulaski thought for a moment. I've got a name in mind. Lincoln Rhyme dialed Sax's mobile. No response. He'd called twice already this morning, once early at 6 a.m. She hadn't picked up then either. He was in the lab with Juliet Archer and Mel Cooper. The hour was early, but they were already looking over the evidence chart and kicking ideas back and forth like players in a soccer game. A simile Rhyme had used coyly, given the sedentary nature of two of the participants. Cooper said, got something here. Rhyme wheeled over to him, his chair nearly colliding with Archer's. It's the varnish that Amelia found at one of the earlier scenes. It just came in from the Bureau's database. Braden Manufacturing, rich coat. Took their sweet time, Cooper continued. Used in fine furniture making, not for floors or general carpentry. Expensive. Sold in how many stores? Archer asked. The appropriate question. That's the bad news, Mel Cooper offered. It's one of the most common varnishes on the market. I make it 120 retail locations in the area. And they sell it in bulk direct to furniture operations, big ones and small. And not to brighten everyone's day, they also sell it online through a half dozen resellers. Write it up on the chart, would you? A discouraged Lincoln Rhyme muttered to Archer. Silence filled the parlor. I, uh, oh, right, Rhyme said. Sorry, forgot. Mel, write it up. The officer added the brand and manufacturer in his fine penmanship. Archer said, even if there are a lot of outlets, I'll start canvassing stores that sell it. See if anybody recognizes our unsub. Rhyme said, there's also a chance that the unsub, Archer continued, works for the store. I've thought of that. I figured I'd do some preliminary. Check out the shops and see if they have employee pictures. Their websites, Facebook, Twitter, maybe softball teams, charities, blood drives. Good. Rhyme wheeled again to the charts and examined them. He felt prodded by urgency. Now that they'd confirmed that the People's Guardian, their unsub-40, was a serial performer, they had every reason to suspect that he would move again soon. That was often the nature of multiple criminals. Whatever motivated them, sexual pleasure or terrorist statement, lust tended to accelerate the frequency of their kills. Until tomorrow. There came the sound of a key in the lock, the door opening and footsteps in the hall. Sax and Pulaski had arrived. Sometimes the kid was in uniform, sometimes street clothes. Today he was dressing down, jeans and a t-shirt. Sax looked tired. Her eyes were red and her posture slumped. Sorry I'm late. I called. Busy night. She walked to the charts and looked over them. Well, where are we? Rhyme gave her a synopsis of the varnish, what Archer was doing, 
canvassing stores for customers who'd bought the substance. Sachs asked, anything more on the napkins? Didn't hear from HQ, Mel Cooper replied. She grimaced, still missing. Rhyme, too, was scanning the charts. The answer's there, except that it wasn't. There's something we're missing, Rhyme snapped. A man's voice boomed from the doorway. Of course there is, Link. How many times I have to tell you? You gotta look at the big picture. Do I always need to hold your goddamn hand? And with that, rumpled NYPD detective Lon Salito limped slowly into the room, assisted by a dapper cane. Chapter 41 Waiting for his ride, looking at the sheets on the couch of his apartment, Nick Corelli smiled. Not to himself, an actual full-faced smile. He'd been the gentleman last night when Amelia was over. They'd sat together on the couch. The dining table was cluttered with Operation I'm Innocent paperwork. And eaten the curried chicken and finished the wine, down to the last bit. A good bottle he'd bought knowing she was coming over. Sitting close to her, yes, but a gentleman. When she said, a bit woozy, that she couldn't drive home and should call a cab, he'd said, You want the couch? Or the bed and I'll take the couch? Don't worry, I'm not hitting on you. You just look, well, you look like you needed to fall asleep an hour ago. You don't mind? Nope. Couch. I'll even make it upright. He hadn't. But neither had she minded the sloppy job. In five minutes, she'd been asleep. Nick had just stared at her beautiful face for two or three minutes. Maybe longer. He didn't know. Nick now pulled the sheets off the couch, took them into the bedroom, and pitched them into the laundry hamper. He got the pillowcase, too, lifted it to his face, and smelled it, feeling a thud in his gut at the aroma of her shampoo. He'd been going to launder this, too, but changed his mind and set it on the dresser. His mobile beeped with a text. Freddie Carruthers had arrived. He rose, pulled on his jacket, and left the apartment. In front of the building, he jumped into his friend's SUV, an Escalade, an older one, but well taken care of. He gave Freddie an address in Queens. Freddie nodded and started off. He turned this way and that a dozen times. He wasn't using GPS. Freddie seemed to know the area cold. The guy looked tiny behind the big wheel of the caddy, but less toady this morning for some reason. Nick sat back in the crinkly leather and watched the urban vista mellow as they headed east. The ambience morphed from bodega and walk-up to 7-Eleven to bungalows to larger single families surrounded by plots of lawn grass and gardens. You didn't have to drive far in Queens to see the change. Freddy gave him the folder. Everything I could get on John Perone and his company, his contacts. Man is brilliant. Nick read, took some notes, compared what Freddy'd found to what he himself had pieced together. His heart tapped solidly. Yes, this could be just what he needed. Salvation. Another smile. He slipped the papers into his inner jacket pocket, and the two men made small talk. Freddy said he was going to take his sister's kids to the ball game this weekend. The Mets, they're 12 and 15. The Mets? Ha, the boys. Attitude some, but not with me so much. And you're 15 without an attitude, something's way wrong. Remember when Peterson caught us with that pint in the gym? Freddy laughed. 
What did you say to him? It was, I don't remember, but it didn't go over good. Nick said. He was like, what the hell are you doing with booze? Don't you know it's bad for you? And I just went, then why'd your wife give it to me? Jesus, that's right. What a line. He decked you, didn't he? Shoved me is all, and suspended me for a week. They drove in silence for a few blocks, Nick relishing the memories of school. Freddie asked, what's the story with you and Amelia? I mean, she's with that guy now, right? Nick shrugged. Yeah, she's with him. That's kind of weird, don't you think? He's a cripple. Wait, can you say that? No, you can't say that. But he is, right? Disabled. I looked it up. You can say disabled. They don't like handicapped either. Words, Freddy said. My dad, he called blacks coloreds, which you weren't supposed to. But now you're supposed to say persons of color, which is a lot like coloreds. So I don't get it. You guys made a nice couple, you and Amelia. Yeah, we did. Nick glanced in the side-view mirror and stiffened. Shit. What? Freddy asked. You see that car behind us? The green, don't know, Buick, I think? No, Chevy. Got a look? What about it? It's been making the same turns as us. Oh, shit. What's that about? Nobody after me I know about. Nick looked in the mirror again. He shook his head. God damn it. What? I think it's Call. Is Vinny Call? That asshole detective hassling us at the Bayview with Vaughn. Shit. Staking out your place, that's low. I ditched the gun. They'll never find it. And you didn't do nothing. You could say you didn't know he had a piece, even if it comes up. And Vaughn didn't give his real name. What's he about? He's a dick. That's what it's about. Just riding me, maybe. Man, I don't want to screw this up with Perone. It's too important. It's the only way I'm going to prove I'm innocent. He looked around. Look, Fred, he's got nothing on you. He doesn't know you called in that false alarm. Do me a favor. Sure, Nick, you got it. He looked around. Pull into that garage, pointing ahead. Here? Yeah. Freddy spun the wheel fast. Tires squealed. It was a four-story parking garage attached to an enclosed shopping center. I'm getting out here. Just hang for a half hour, 40 minutes. What are you gonna do? I'll go through the stores, get a cab to talk to Perone, meet you back here. I'm sorry about this. No, it's cool. I'll get some breakfast. Freddy pulled to a stop near one of the entrances to the mall. Nick asked, You saw him at the restaurant, right? Call? Yeah, I remember him. If he comes up and wants to know about me, I'll tell him I can't talk. I'm waiting for his wife. Freddy winked. Nick grinned and slapped the little man on the shoulder. He jumped out of the SUV and vanished into the mall. There was no security, no human security in the lobby of J&K Financial, only a mundane intercom. Nick pressed a button and announced himself. A pause. Do you have an appointment? A woman's voice asked. No, but I'd appreciate a chance to speak to Mr. Perone. It has to do with Algonquin transportation. Another pause, longer. The door lock buzzed with what Nick thought was a jarringly loud sound. He stepped into a small elevator and on the third floor he entered a surprisingly nice office, given the neighborhood and the scruffy facade of the building. John Perone did okay for himself, it seemed. The receptionist was a beautiful woman with deep mocha skin. Behind her, two offices were visible through open doors, both occupied by men, large men with short brownish hair. 
Their large torsos were encased in pressed dress shirts. One was lost in a phone call. The eyes of the other, in the near office, swiveled to Nick. The bigger of the two, he wore yellow suspenders over a pale green shirt. His stare was cool. The receptionist set down her landline. Mr. Perone will see you now. Nick thanked her. He walked inside the largest office in the suite, filled with books and spreadsheets and business documents, along with memorabilia and photos, hundreds of photos. On the wall, on the desk, on the coffee table, a lot of them appeared to be a family. John Perone rose. He wasn't a tall man and was solidly built, like a column, wearing a gray suit, white shirt, and tie the color of the sea surrounding a Greek island. Black hair slicked back. He'd cut himself shaving, and Nick wondered if he used a straight razor. He seemed the sort of might. A gold bracelet encircled his right wrist. Mr. Corelli? Nick. I'm John. Have a seat. Both men lowered themselves into supple leather chairs. Perone eyed him carefully. You mentioned Algonquin transportation. I did. You've heard of it? It's not in business anymore, but I believe it was a private trucking company. That's right. It transported pharmaceuticals and cigarettes and unmarked semis for big brand manufacturers. Unmarked because, of course, hijackers would target trucks with Philip Morris or Pfizer logos on them. I'm aware of that practice. What does that have to do with me? Fifteen years ago, an Algonquin semi carrying two million dollars worth of prescription drugs was hijacked near a bridge over the Gowanus Canal. Was it? You know it was. The hijacker stashed the drugs in a warehouse in Queens, but before he could get back and fence them to his buyers, he got busted. Somebody in a Brooklyn crew found out about the jacked merchandise and stole the whole shipment from the warehouse. It took me a while, but I found out those guys worked for you. I don't know anything about that. No? Well, I do. Perone said nothing for a moment. Then, how are you so sure? Because I was the hijacker. Nick let that sit for a minute. Now, my take from the job was going to be 700K, which you robbed me of. Inflation and interest? Give me a million, and we're square. Chapter 42 Well, look at this. Mel Cooper was grinning, running a hand through his thinning hair. Stepping into the parlor, moving slowly, Lon Salito nodded to those present. He'd been Rhyme's partner for some years when the criminalist was on the NYPD. Of recent, Salito had fed Rhyme consultancy work, helping major cases with forensics and other investigative services. Lon! Pulaski was on his feet and pumping the detective's hand. All right, all right. Take it easy on an old man. In fact, Salito was comfortably lounging somewhere in middle age. Tom, who'd let the officer in, said, Anything for you, Lon? Hell yes. If you baked it, I'm all over it. The aide smiled. Anyone else? The others declined. Salito was a Cliffsnotes version of himself having been sidelined for a long time thanks to a perp who'd poisoned him. He'd nearly died and had undergone a great deal of treatment and therapy. He had dropped, Rhyme guessed, 40 pounds over the past year. His thinning hair was graying. With his lithe, new physique, he looked even more rumpled than usual. The clothes didn't fit, and some of the newly emptied skin was baggy too. 
Salito walked farther into the room, eyes on Juliet Archer. What is this? His voice faded. Rhyme and Archer laughed. You can say it. I, Archer cocked her head. A wheelchair showroom? Salito, blushing one of the few blushes Rhyme had ever seen on his cheeks, said, I was gonna say convention, but yours is funnier. Rhyme introduced them. She said, I'm an intern. Salito cut a glance toward Rhyme. You are a mentor? Jesus, Juliet, good luck with that. Sachs hugged Salito. She and Rhyme saw the detective and his girlfriend Rachel with some frequency, but now that Rhyme wasn't doing criminal work and Salito had been on medical leave, they hadn't worked together for a long time. Ah, his eyes glowed as Tom brought a tray of Danish into the parlor. Salito scarfed. Tom handed him a coffee. Thanks. You don't want sugar, right? Yeah, I do a couple. Salito's idea of losing weight had been to choose black coffee to accompany the donuts. Now slim, he was indulging. The major case's detective looked over the parlor with a critical eye. Half the equipment covered with plastic. The dozen whiteboards turned against a far wall. Jesus, I take a break and everything goes to hell. Then he smiled. And you, Amelia, heard about your big game hunting, escalators and BK malls. What exactly do you hear? I got the incident report to the team on time. All good, the detective added. They're holding you up as misingenuity, and better than good. Medino's got cred. He just got tapped for a spot at one PP, so you got a power hitter rooting for you. Rhyme said sourly. Fans root for hitters, Lon, not the other way around. Jesus, did kids in school regularly beat the crap out of you, Mr. Hand up first with the right answer? Let's get caught up later on irrelevant issues, shall we? Lon, you were saying big picture? I read what you sent. Salito was the expert Rhyme had uploaded the unsub-40 case file to. He smiled to himself at the man's laconic response. Yeah, yeah, tomorrow. First, this is one sick kid. Accurate, but irrelevant. Rhyme said with subdued impatience, Lon, so, what we have? He's got this thing for products, for consumer products that we bring into our houses and turn on us. Now, my take... He's agendizing in two ways. What did you say? Rhyme started reflexively. I'm messing with you, Link. Couldn't resist. Been months without you breaking my balls with a grammar lesson. Pardon my French. Directed at Archer. She smiled. Salito continued. Okay, he's got two agendas. Using the controller things to make a statement or to target rich people who buy expensive shit or whatever. That's his weapon of choice. Messed up, but there it is. Agenda two, self-defense. He needs to stop people or after him, i.e. us. Well, you. He's been at the scenes to type in the code to work the controller, right? Right, Archer said. You can hack into the cloud server from anywhere in the world, but he seems to want to be close. We think he may have some moral element, making sure he doesn't hurt kids or maybe poorer folks who don't spend lots of money on indulgent products. Or, Sachs said, he gets turned on by watching. Well, that means he might have stayed around to see who was after him. The evidence collection team. You, Amelia and Ron. I was at a scene too, Rhyme said, when he destroyed the office of the man who taught him how to hack the controllers. 
he grimaced. And he saw Evers Whitmore there. He on the force? Salito asked. No, a lawyer. I was working with him, the civil case, the escalator accident, before we knew it was a homicide. Salito sipped coffee, then added another sugar. Wouldn't be hard for your unsub to ID him. And you, your too public link, easy to track you down and all your little chickies. I'd get protective details on everybody. I can handle that. Rhyme ordered the computer to print out Whitmore's address and phone. Salito reminded him that he had Cooper's and Sachs's personal information, and he'd get a detail to their residences. Archer said it was unlikely she was at risk, but Rhyme was emphatic. I want somebody at your brother's anyway. Unlikely doesn't mean impossible. From now on, we all have to assume we're in his sights. On the agenda for today, the People's Guardian has more mischief planned. And a beautiful day for it, too. I spent some time with Alicia, comforting her. She's off to do some work. She's a bookkeeper, a sort of accountant, though I couldn't tell you where she works or exactly what she does. Fact is, she's not excited about it, and therefore I'm not either. We're not a typical couple. Our lives do not, of course, completely coincide. I'm enjoying first one, then a second breakfast sandwich at the window of my place in Chelsea, tasty, full of salt. My blood pressure is so low that a doctor asked jokingly during a checkup if I was still alive. I smiled, though it was not really funny coming from a medico. I was inclined to crack his skull, but I didn't. I chew the second sandwich down fast and get ready to go out. Not quite ready for PG's full-on assault, though. I have an errand first. New outfit today. No cap for a change. My blonde crew cut is there for the world to see. A running suit. Navy blue, stripes along the legs. My shoes, nothing to do about them. I need a special size. My feet are long, like my fingers, the way my skinny body is tall. The condition is Marfan syndrome. Hey, Vern, sack of bones. Hey, bean boy. Can't reason with people. Can't say it wasn't my choice. Can't say God blinked, or he played a joke. Doesn't work to point out that Abraham Lincoln was one of us. Doesn't work to say, what's the big deal? So you let it go, the taunts, the punches, the pictures slipped in your locker, until you choose not to let it go. Red's partner, this Lincoln Rhyme, his body's betrayed him and he copes. A productive member of society. Good for him. I'm taking a different path. Backpack over my shoulder, I head out onto the street, radiant on this glorious spring day. Funny how beauty blossoms to fill the world when you're on a mission. So, I go west toward the river. And the closer I get to the gray Hudson, the farther back in time I go. Chelsea East and Central, near me, his apartments and boutiques and chic and New York Times-reviewed restaurants. To the far west, it's industrial, like it was in the 1800s, I imagine. I see the building I'm looking for. I pause, pull on cloth gloves, and on the prepaid, I make a call. Everest Graphics, a voice answers. Yes, Edwin Boyle, please, it's an emergency. Oh, hold on. Three minutes, three solid minutes I wait. How long would it be if this weren't an emergency? Which it isn't, but never mind. Hello, this is Edwin Boyle. Who's this? Detective Peter Falk, NYPD. Not so much into TV, no, but I loved Columbo. Oh, what's wrong? I'm sorry to report your apartment's been broken into. No, what happened? Druggies? Those kids hanging out on the street? We don't know, sir. We'd like you to take a look and tell us what's missing. How soon can you be here? Ten minutes. I'm not that far away. 
How did you know I work here? I'm prepared. Found some business cards in the floor of your place. It was ransacked. Such a great word. Okay, I'll be right there. I'm leaving now. I disconnect and examine the sidewalk. Other companies and commercial operations squat here. One pathetic ad agency striving to be cool. Sidewalks pretty deserted. I step into the loading dock of an abandoned warehouse. It's no more than three minutes before a figure steams past. Sixty-ish Edwin Boyle, eyes forward, concern on his face. Stepping forward fast, I grab his collar and yank him into the shadows of the loading dock. Oh, Jesus! He turns toward me, eyes wide. You! From up the hall! What the hell? We're neighbors. Two apartments away or three, though we don't say much to each other. Just a nod hello occasionally. I don't say anything now. What's the point? No quips, no chance for last words. People can get snaky at times like that. I just bury the round end of the ball-peen hammer in Edwin's temple, like with Todd Williams, while we were on our way to have a drink commemorating our joint venture and making the world safe from smart products too smart for our own good. Crack, crack, bone separates, blood appears. On the ground, he's squirming, eyes unfocused. Pull the hammer out, it's not easy. And do the same thing again. And again. The squirms stop. I look onto the street. No pedestrians. A few cars, but we're deep in obscuring shadow. I drag poor Edwin to a supply cabinet of the abandoned warehouse's abandoned loading dock and open the warped plywood door, muslin inside, and crouch down and get his phone. It's passcode protected, but that doesn't matter. I recognize it from last night. Alicia and I were making love on the couch beside the fish tank. I glanced up at the security monitor and saw Edwin returning home drunk like most nights outside my door recording the sounds. Didn't tell her, didn't say anything. It would upset her, a woman whose resting state is upset. But I knew I'd have to crack Edwin's bones for what he did. Just knew it. Not that there was any evidence that could be used to track me down. Just because doing that, recording us, was cruel. It was the act of a shopper. And that was reason enough for the man to die. Wish it had been with more nociceptive pain. But she can't have everything. Crack the bones of his mobile, too. Can't take the battery out very easily on these models. And I'll dispose of it later. I notice a few intrigued rats nearby, cautious but sniffy. Nice way to eliminate evidence, it occurs to me. Hungry rodents, digesting trace evidence from the corpse. Stepping out onto the sidewalk, I inhale deeply. Air's a bit ripe, this part of town, but invigorating. A good day, and soon to get better. It's time for the main event. Stand up, Jean Perron said, smoothing his jet black hair. Was a bottle involved? Probably. Nick knew the drill, pulled up his shirt and spun around slowly, then dropped his pants too, and underwear. Perron glanced down. Impressed? Dismayed? A lot of men were. Nick buttoned and zipped and tucked. Shut your phone off and battery out. Nick did this too, set them on Perron's desk. He glanced at the door. The man in suspenders was there. 
Nick wondered how long he'd been present. It's okay, Ralph, he's clean. Nick stared into Ralph's eyes until the man turned and left the room. Back to Perone. Just to connect the dots, John, a friend of mine tracked down a friend of yours, Norman Ring, presently guest of the state, doing five to eight up in Hillside. He earned himself serious time because he agreed to keep quiet when he could have rolled over on you. I've got enough, though, to put you two together. Jesus, man. Shit. Perone's complexion, ruddy from weekend golf and vacationing, Nick guessed, grew ruddier yet under the painted hair. It's all in a letter to my lawyer, to be opened in the event of my getting effed. You know the rest of it, right? So let's not get indignant here, or blustery, or trigger-happy. Let's just talk business. Didn't you ever wonder where the merch you stole came from? Algonquin? Perone was calmer now. I kept waiting for somebody to come out of the woodwork, but nobody did. What was I gonna do? Take out an ad? Found two million bucks worth of oxine perk and propofol. Call this number. No harm done, but time for my money. You didn't need to come on like the damn godfather. Nick screwed up his face. All respect, John. What happened to the owner of the warehouse where I stored the shit, Stan Redman? Perone hesitated. Accident, construction site. I heard you buried him alive after he tried to move the merch himself. I don't recall any such occurrence. Nick shot him a wry glance. Now the money, I earned it, I need it. I'll go six. We're not negotiating, John. Even you went to the hardest-ass fence in the city, you cleared 55 points, that's over a million. And I'll bet you didn't. You're not a discount kind of guy at all. You sold it on the street. You probably walked away with 3M, pure profit. Perone shrugged. The equivalent of, yeah, pretty much. So here's the deal. I want a million. And I want paperwork shows it as a loan from a company that can't be traced to you or anybody with a record. Only we have a side agreement, written, that the debt's forgiven. I'll worry about the IRS if it comes to that. Perone's grimace was more reluctant admiration. Any other thing you want, Nick? As a matter of fact, yeah, there is. The Algonquin jacking, the Gowanus. I want you to put the word out on the street that it wasn't me did it. It was my brother, Donnie. Your brother? You're diming him out? He's dead, he won't give a shit. Whatever people hear on the street, nobody's reversing a conviction. I know that. I just want some people who are in the loop to hear it. Perone said, I knew that merch had come back to haunt me. Are we through? Almost. Oh, Christ. Now, there's a guy named Vittorio Gera. Owns a restaurant in BK. The place is his name, Vittorio's. Yeah? I want you to have somebody visit him. Tell him he's going to sell the place to me for half of what he's asking. And if he doesn't? Have that somebody lean on his wife and daughters. I think he's got grandchildren, too. Just get some pictures of them in the park and send them to him. That should do it. If not, have somebody visit his youngest daughter, Hannah. She's the one looks like a slut. Just take her for a ride around the block. You do have a style, Nick. You robbed me, Perone. I don't need any shit from you. All right. I'll get the paperwork put together. Then Perone was frowning. How'd you tip to me, Nick? Couldn't have been that easy. I cover tracks real good. Always have. Who's this friend of yours? Name's Freddy Carruthers. 
so he could put me together with the Algonquin heist merch and put you and me together. Nick said, which brings me to my last request. Perone was nodding slowly. His eyes remained on something behind Nick, on a hat on the coat rack, or on a grease spot on the wall, or a photo of him playing golf at Meadowbrook. Or maybe on nothing at all. Freddy drove me part way today. I told him I was worried there was a cop after me, and we ducked into the garage at Grand Central Center, the mall. I took a cab the rest of the way. Cop? No, no, I made it up. I just wanted Freddy to cool his heels. Nick had had an idea this was how it was going to shake out. Perone said softly, We can take care of that. He made a call. A moment later, Ralph, of the solid chest and flamboyant suspenders and icy glare, was back. Nick Corelli, Ralph Seville. A moment of mano eyelock, and hands were shaken. Got a job for you, Perone said. Sure, sir. Nick pulled out his phone, slipped the battery in, turned it back on. He texted Freddy. He didn't want to hear the men's voice. On way back, any sign of call? There wouldn't be, of course. Nope, Nick typed and sent. Where are you? The reply was, purple level near Forever 21 door. Nick's next message was, see you in 15. From Freddy, all good? Nick hesitated, then typed, great. Nick gave Ralph the information about Freddy's location. He's in a black Escalade. He then cut a glance toward Perone. No buried alive shit. Fast, painless. Sure. I don't need to send messages. This is just loose ends. And I don't want him to know it was me. Ralph gave a grimace. I'll do what I can, but just try. The phone's got my texts, and my prints are in his SUV. We'll take care of everything. Ralph nodded and left the office. Nick caught sight of a large nickel-plated automatic pistol in his waistband, thinking one of those bullets would be in his friend's brain in a half hour. Nick rose, and he and Perone shook hands. I'll get a cab back to the city. Nick? The man paused. You interested in doing some work with me? I just want to open my business and settle down and get married, but sure, I'll think about it. Nick walked out of the office lifting his phone and dialing a number. Chapter 43 Rhyme was looking at Amelia Sachs when her phone rang. She glanced away from him and stepped to the recesses of the parlor to take a call. Her back was to the room. He wondered if it was her mother. Her shoulders were slumped. Was all okay? He knew the troubled history of mother and daughter, but also knew that it had improved with the years. Rose had mellowed. Sachs had, too, with regard to her mother. Years go by, edges dull. Entropy. And now, of course, the woman's illness. Someone's physical condition, as he well knew, can change all. He couldn't hear or deduce much. Finally, restaurant, and works out, and congratulations. She sounded enthusiastic. Then after she'd listened for a time, I have faith in you. Not Rose. Then who? He turned back to the evidence charts, wheeled closer. His meditation was interrupted by Lon Salito. Anything close in NCIC? No, Rhyme said. 
The 14 people files and the seven property files in the National Crime Database were geared toward individuals with outstanding warrants or who were otherwise suspects, and toward stolen property. It was possible to run a profile of a crime or pattern of crimes and shoot out a few names, but that wasn't what the FBI system was designed for. Juliet Archer said, In the media and academic sites, I found plenty of stories or reports of instances of hacking smart systems, mostly for the sake of hacking. Nature of the hobby, my son tells me. The challenge. Nobody's intentionally weaponized an appliance, though some hackers have taken control of cars and stoplights. Stoplights? That's a scary thought. From Salito. She continued. It's cheaper to use wireless controls in them. Public works doesn't have to dig and lay cables. Salito said. Solid backgrounding. You'd make a good cop. Passing the physical would be a problem. Salito muttered. Link sits on his ass all day long. You can consult. Give him some competition. Keep him sharp. The rumpled detective was once more scanning the charts. The hell's his profile. Maybe explosives, but we ain't had any bangs lately. Toxins, but nobody's been poisoned. He's a fine woodworker. What's he build, do you think? Cabinets or bookshelves? With the glass, maybe that's it. No, Rhyme said. The glass fragments were old, and Amelia found glazing compound. I don't think furniture glass is mounted with glazing. That's for residences. Besides, see the rubber? It was found with the ammonia. That told me he replaced a broken window and cleaned the new one with a squeegee and paper towel. His voice faded as he looked at the chart. Window. Pulaski said, even psycho killers need to do home repairs. Probably it's not related to the case. Rhyme mused, but he just recently repaired it. The trace was fresh and found with other evidence from the scene. Just speculating here, but if you were going to break into somebody's house or an office, you could front you were a repairman, Salito said. Sachs said, put on coveralls. Carry a new piece of glass with you. Break in, get what you need inside, then replace the glass, clean it, and leave. Anybody looking would think you were the super or had been hired to do repairs. Archer added, and he pretended to be a workman once before in the theater district. Salito said, Maybe he broke in somewhere to find out if there was some device that had one of those controllers in it, that data-wise thing. He doesn't need to, Archer pointed out. His first Vic, Todd Williams, downloaded the list of products with controllers and the people or companies who bought them. Did she actually say Vic? Rhyme was amused. Yeah, yeah, Salito said. That's right, Rhyme said. I could see it if the shards of glass we found were frosted. He'd replaced the glass with clear so he could see his kill zone. But the broken pane was clear. Old or cheap, but clear. I want to work with this. Assuming our window repairman scenario is valid, and let's be bold here, he's planning another attack, then it's because there's no embedded product at the target location. Sachs quickly said, and that's because he's going after somebody who's not on the list. A specific person rather than a random consumer. Good, Rhyme said. Let's work with that. But why? From Archer. Rhyme's eyes closed momentarily, then opened fast. Somebody who's a threat. What Ron was just suggesting. It's his second mission. To stop those who are after him or a threat to him. Us, maybe a witness. Somebody who knows him and might be growing suspicious. Anything on the charts that might suggest a victim unrelated to the products? Nothing to do with his manifesto against consumers? He scanned the charts. 
Although the source for some items had not been isolated, Queens, everything had been identified, except one thing. Damn it, Mel. What the hell is the plant? We asked the Horticultural Society ages ago. It was yesterday. Ages, like I said, Rhyme snapped. Call, find out. Cooper looked the number up once more and placed the call. Professor Aniston, this is Detective Cooper, NYPD. I sent you that sample of vegetation trace evidence we found at a crime scene. Have you had any luck? We're under some time pressure. Sure. Cooper glanced toward them. He's looking it up now. Which suggests it wasn't a particularly burdensome request in the first place, Rhyme muttered, probably louder than he should have. Cooper's body language changed as the call resumed. He wrote on a pad beside him. Got it. Thanks, Professor. He disconnected. It's rare. You don't find it very often. That's what rare means, Mel. What the hell is it? It's a fragment of leaf from a hibiscus. But what's rare is that it's a blue one. There'll be limited sources. My God. Sachs pulled her phone out, hit speed dial. This is Detective 5885. Sachs, I need officers at 4218 Martin Street, Brooklyn. Possible 1034 in progress. Suspect is white male, 62 to 64, weight 150. Possibly armed. I'm en route. She hung up, grabbed her jacket. My mother's house. I got her a blue hibiscus for her birthday. It's in her backyard, right by a window to the basement. He raked something there. Sachs sprinted for the door, making a second call. A circuit breaker had popped. Rose Sachs was now in her Brooklyn townhouse's dank basement, the place redolent of mold. She was making her way slowly to the panel. Slowly, not because of her cardiac condition, but because of the clutter. Looking over the boxes, the shelves, the racks of plastic-wrapped clothing. Even here she felt good, the even because she was dodging a spider's elaborate web. Good spending some time in her own house for a change. She loved her daughter, appreciated everything Amy did for her. But the girl, the woman, had been such a, well, mother hen about the surgery. Stay at my house, Mom. Come on, no, I'll drive you. No, I'll pick up dinner. Sweet of her. But the fact was, Rose wasn't going to break apart in the days leading up to the operation. No, it was obvious what Amy was thinking that Rose might not wake up from the deep sleep while the surgeon was slicing out components of her heart and replacing them with little tubes from a lesser part of her body. Daughter wanted to spend as much time with mother as possible, just in case part A didn't get along with part B, which, by the way, God never did intend. Upstairs, her mobile phone was ringing. They could leave a message. Or maybe Amelia's persistence and insistence was simply her uncompromising nature. And for this, Rose thought, smiling, she herself was to blame. She was thinking of the turbulent days with her daughter. What had been the source of Rose's moods, her paranoia, her suspicion, thinking that father and daughter were conspiring to get away from mom. But that wasn't paranoia at all. They were conspiring. As well they should have. What a shrew I was. Who knew what was the reason? There were probably meds I could have taken, probably therapists I could have shared with. But that would have been a weakness. And Rose Sachs had never done well with weakness. At this moment, lost in these reflections, she felt a burst of pride. 
because the upside of that attitude was that she'd created a strong daughter. Herman had given the girl heart and humor. Rose had given her steel. Uncompromising. The lights here in the cellar were working. It was on the second floor that the lamp had gone out. She wondered why the breaker had popped. She hadn't turned anything on, no iron or hair dryer. She'd been reading, and pop, out went the lights. But the house was old. Maybe one of the breakers was bad. Now the home line was ringing, an old-fashioned ring, ring, ring. She paused. Well, there was voicemail on that one, too. Telemarketer on the landline, probably. She didn't use that phone much anymore, just her cell phone. Welcome to the 21st century. What would Herman have thought? Moving aside a few boxes to clear a path to the breaker box, she thought of Nick Corelli. Rose supposed that the story was true, that he'd taken the blame for his brother. That seemed good, that seemed noble. But as she'd told her daughter, if he'd really loved Amy, wouldn't he have found a better way to handle it? A cop had to accept that you did things the right way when it came to the law. Her husband had been a lifelong policeman, a portable, a foot patrolman, walking the beat in a number of places, mostly in Times Square. He'd done his job with calm determination and was never confrontational, diffusing conflicts, not fanning flames. Rose could never see Herman taking the fall for anybody, because even if for a good cause, that would have been a lie. A tightening of her lips. Another matter. Her daughter was wrong, wrong, wrong to have any contact with Nick at all. Rose had seen his eyes. He wanted them to get back together, clear as day. Rose wondered what Lincoln knew about it. Rose's advice would have been for Amy to drop Nick instantly, even if the mayor himself gave him a big fat blue ribbon saying pardon. But such was the nature of children. You bore them, shaped them as best you could, and then turned them out into the world. Bundles that contained all your gold stars and all your cinders. Amy would do the right thing, Rose hoped. Continuing toward the breaker box, she noticed the window next to it was quite clean for a change. Maybe the gardener had washed it. She'd have to thank him when he came next week. Rose passed some old boxes labeled A's High School. Rose laughed softly, remembering those crazy years. Amy spending her free hours on car repair and fielding modeling jobs for some of the top agencies in Manhattan. Remembered how one time the 17-year-old girl had had to wear black polish at a fashion shoot not because the scene involved gothic chic, but because it had proven impossible to dig out the General Motors grease out from under her nails. Rose decided she'd take one of the boxes upstairs. What fun to look through. They could do that together. Maybe tonight after dinner. And she began to slide boxes out of the way to clear a path to the breaker box. Chapter 44 Sitting on a doorstep in overalls and cap, I'm a workman once more, taking a workman's break. Newspaper and coffee at hand, lingering before I have to get back to the job. And glancing through the basement window of Mrs. Rose Sachs's townhouse in idyllic Brooklyn. Ah, there she is, coming into view. It's worked well, my plan. The other day, staking out Red's townhouse just six blocks away, I'd spotted an elderly woman stepping from the police girl's doorway and locking the deadbolt. 
a clear resemblance. Aunt or mother. So I followed her here. A little touch of Google, and the relationship became clear. Hi, Mom. Red needs to be stopped and needs to be taught a lesson. Killing this woman will do the trick nicely. Rose, a lovely name, soon to be a dry, dead flower. I would have liked to use one of my trusted controller exploits again, but the other day I scanned diligently and found no embedded circuits begging to be let into the network or shooting data heavenward. But as I know from woodworking, sometimes you must improvise. Brazilian rosewood, short supply, so go with Indian. Not as rich, not as voluptuously purple, cuts differently, smooths differently, but you make do. And occasionally the pram, the dresser, the gingham-dressed bed works out better than you'd planned. So, let's see now if my improv here works out. It really was quite simple. I rigged a circuit from a garage door opener to short out a light in Rose's living room. A few minutes ago, I pressed the opener button on the remote, which popped the breaker. And Rose started downstairs to find the box and reset it. Normally, she'd have an easy job of simply flicking the switch back into the on position. Let there be light. Except that won't happen. Because I diverted the main line from the incoming wire to the circuit breaker box itself. The metal door is, in effect, a live wire, carrying 220 volts and many wonderful heart-stopping amps. Even if she's inclined to do the wise thing, the safe thing, and cut off the main power before resetting the breaker, she'll still have to open the door to do that. And zap. Now she's feet away from the breaker box. Then, unfortunately, she moves out of view. But it's clear where she is, and she'll be reaching for the handle now. Yes! Anticlimactic. But I see it's worked perfectly. When she completed the circuit with her body, the main line shorted out, extinguishing all the electricity to the house. The upstairs and basement and front door lights went dark. I imagine I heard a growling buzz. But that would have to be in my mind's ear. I'm too far away for that. Goodbye, Rose. Rising and hurrying away. A block down this pleasant street, I hear sirens getting louder. Curious, are they coming here? Could it be they're en route to me? Has Red figured something out? That I was about to visit the wrath of Edison upon Mama? No, impossible. It's just a coincidence. I can't help but be delighted with the handiwork. Have you learned your lesson, Detective Red? I am not someone to bully. What a day, what a day. He was so looking forward to getting home. Dr. Nathan Egan eased the big sedan through traffic in Brooklyn, Henry Street in the Heights. Not too congested. Good. He stretched, heard a joint pop. The 57-year-old surgeon was tired. He'd been in operating suites for six hours today. Two gallbladders, one appendectomy, a couple of others. Didn't need to, but the kid with the scalpel needed some help. Some medicine was about diagnostics and referrals and business. Some was about slicing open the human body. That young resident wasn't that sort. Nathan Egan was. Exhausted, but more or less content. He felt good. He felt purged. Nobody scrubbed and buffed as much as doctors, surgeons especially. You ended your shift, 
and it was a shift just like an assembly line worker's. You ended your shift with the hottest of hot showers, the most astringent of soaps, your body tingling, a humming sound in your ear from the fierce stream. The memory of the bile and blood washed away, he was now in his husband and parent frame of mind, enjoying the pleasant drive through a pleasant part of the city he loved. Soon he'd see his wife, and later tonight, his daughter and his first grandchild, a boy named Jasper. Hmm. Jasper. Not his first choice when his daughter told him. Jasper, really? Interesting. But then seeing the wrinkled little blob before him and touching his tiny, tiny fingers and toes and delighting in the perplexed infant grin, he decided any name was wonderful. Balthazar, Federico, Aslan, Sue, it didn't matter. Heaven was here on earth, and he remembered at that moment, eye to eye with his grandson, why he had taken the Hippocratic Oath. Because life is precious. Life is astonishing. Life is worth devoting yours to. Egan clicked on satellite radio and hit a pre-select button, one of the NPR channels, and began listening to Terry Gross's wonderful show. This is Fresh Air. Which was when his car went insane. Without warning, the engine began to scream as if he'd floored the accelerator. The cruise control light blinked on spontaneously. His hands hadn't been anywhere near the switch. And the system must have been instructing the engine to accelerate to a hundred. Jesus, no! The tachometer redlined, and the car surged forward, tires smoking, rear end wobbling like a drag racer's. Egan cried out in panic as he wove into the oncoming traffic, and at the moment, empty lane. The vehicle hit fifty, sixty, his head bouncing back against the rest, his eyes unfocused. He slammed his foot on the brake, but the engine surge was so unrelenting that the car slowed hardly at all. No! The panic was on him completely. He let up on the brake and jammed down again over and over. He felt a metatarsal in his foot snap. Now at 60 miles per hour and climbing, his auto continued to skid and weave. Cars veered from his path, horns blaring. He jammed the start-stop button for the engine, but the motor kept up its demonic roar. Think. The gear shift. Yes. Neutral. He shoved the lever to the central position, and thank God. That did the trick. The engine still howled, but the transmission was disengaged. He pitched forward as the car slowed, dropping to sixty-five. Sixty. Now the brakes, which were not working at all. No, 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 he cried. Consumed with panic, paralyzed, he could only stare forward as the car raced against a red light and toward the intersection ahead, noting the vehicle stopped or slowly crawling in the cross-traffic lane perpendicular to him. Cars, a garbage truck, a school bus. He would strike one of them broadside at close to 50 miles an hour. A splinter of rational thought. You're dead, but save who you can. Hit the truck, not the bus. Go right, just a bit. But his hands couldn't pace his mind, and tweaking the wheel sent the car veering directly toward a Toyota sedan. He gaped at the panicked face of the driver of the tiny car he was speeding directly for. The elderly man was as frozen as Nathan Egan. Another twitch of the wheel, and the doctor's car struck the rear driver's side of the Japanese vehicle, a few feet behind the man at the wheel. The next thing that the surgeon knew, he was coming around, 
after the airbag had knocked him unconscious. He was frozen in position, embraced by bones of steel from the crumpled car, trapped. But alive, he thought. Jesus, I'm alive. Outside, people running. Mobile phones were filming the accident. Pricks. Had at least one person had the decency to call 911? Then yes, he heard a siren. Would he end up in his own hospital? That would be rather ironic. Maybe the same ER doctor he'd helped out. But wait, I feel so cold. Why, am I paralyzed? Then Nathan Egan realized that no, he had complete sensation. What he was feeling was liquid cascading over his body from the mangled rear portion of the Toyota he'd virtually cut in half. Gasoline was drenching every inch of his body from the waist down. Chapter 45 Amelia Sachs hit 80 on the FDR. This was not easy to do. Incurring horn blares and extended fingers, Sachs ignored the protests and concentrated on finding gaps between cars, braking furiously, zipping through lane changes, keeping the revs high, 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 fifth gear at the most. Fourth, she called it, the gutsy gear, was better, and the meat and potatoes, third. When you move, they can't get you. And the corollary, when you move, they can't get away. No, she was saying into the hands-free, speaking to the patrolman from the precinct near her mother's townhouse. He's there somewhere nearby. It's his M.O. He, oh shit. What's that, detective? The officer asked. She controlled the skid as she swept past the car that had braked hard to make a sudden exit that neither its driver nor she had been planning on. The Torino and the Taurus, distant relatives, missed a potentially deadly kiss by two inches tops. Sachs continued. His M.O. is he's nearby when there's an attack. He could rig an accident and leave, but he doesn't. He probably flipped the switch and waited to make sure the Vic... Her voice choked. To make sure my mother would get to the trap. He's only had a ten-minute start, and we don't think he's got a car. Gypsies a lot. We're sweeping, detective, just more bodies. I want more bodies out there. He can't get that far. Sure, detective. She missed what else he said, if anything concentrating on fitting between two vehicles in a space no third vehicle was meant to pass through. Over the roar of the Torino's engine, she couldn't tell if contact was made. Horns blared. Sue me, sue the city, she thought. And irritated that she'd lost seconds braking, she downshifted hard and explored the red line zone once again. More people on sight, she repeated to the patrolman and disconnected. Then she said into the mobile, Call Rhyme. He answered immediately. Sachs, where are you? Just onto the Brooklyn Bridge. Hold on. She veered around an idiot on one of those low bicycles you recline upon, a flag fluttering over your head. It wasn't much of a skid. The surface of the bridge gripped her tires well, and she turned sharply into it. The Ford righted itself. Then she had a clear field ahead of her and sped up again. Lon's already called COC. Nothing yet. Checking subways, too. Good, and, oh, Jesus Christ! Clutch in, brake full, shift a second, just in case you need it. Handbrake up, take a skid to buy some space. Sacks! The Torino stopped two feet behind a taxi, 45 degrees in the lane. Well, lane and a half, since she was, yes, at an angle. 
a massive traffic jam extended past the cab she'd nearly slammed into. Traffic stopped, Rhyme. Damn it! Completely stopped, and I'm in the middle of the bridge. Can you have Mel or Ron get me a route once I get off? One without traffic? Hold on, Rhyme shouted. Lon, I need a clear route from the east end of the Brooklyn Bridge to Amelia's mother's place. She climbed out of the car and peered ahead. A sea of vehicles, motionless. Why now, she muttered. Why the hell now? Her phone hummed with a number she recognized, the patrolman she'd been speaking with not long before. She put Rhyme on hold and took the call. Officer, what have you got? I'm sorry, detective. Got a dozen RMPs en route and ESU sending a truck. Only weird, traffic's totally screwed up. The Heights, Carroll Gardens, Cobble Hill, nobody's moving. She sighed. Keep me posted. She flipped back to Rhyme's call. You there, Sax? Can you- I'm here, Rhyme. What's the story? You're gonna be stuck for a while. Looks like five bad accidents all around the same time, near your mom's place. Shit, she spat out. I'll bet it's him. Unsub 40. Remember what Rodney said? He can mess up cars with the controller. That's what he did. I'm parking here and getting a train. Tell Lon to have a crew pick up my wheels. Keys will be under the back floor mat. Sure. Not bothering with the walkway, Sack started east along the bridge. Two trains and a jog later, a half hour, she was at her mother's townhouse, charging into the living room, nodding to the officers, the medics. And she paused. Mom, honey, the women embraced. The mother's flesh and bones troublingly frail under the daughter's grasp. But she was all right. Sachs stepped back and examined her. Rose Sachs was pale, but that was probably from the fright. She'd suffered no physical harm from unsub-40. The medics were here because of her heart condition, a precaution. It had been, however, such a very close call. Rhyme had explained to Sachs that when they'd realized Rose was a possible target, he and the team had speculated that the unsub had, possibly, rigged some kind of electrical trap in her house, since they'd found evidence of stripped electrical wires. At first, they hadn't known how to handle it, other than telling Rose to get out. But the woman still wasn't picking up the phone. And the neighbor Sachs had called wasn't home. They'd been trying to guess exactly what the perp had done to attack Rose when Juliet Archer had blurted, we have to do what Amelia did with that saw in the theater district. Cut the power, the grid. Just cut the entire grid for her block. Rhyme had ordered Lon to do just that. And they'd been in time, but barely. The respondings found that the unsub had sabotaged the circuit breaker box, which Rose had been reaching for at the instant the grid went down. The power was back on in the neighborhood now. Sachs didn't want to think of the complaints, lost computer data and communications, but they'd have to deal with it. Her mother was alive. I'm sorry this happened, Mom. Why would he want to hurt me? To get to me. It's become like a chess game between us, move for move. He must have thought we wouldn't consider you'd be a target. Now one of these officers is going to take you to my house and stay with you. I've got to run the scene here, in the basement, where he broke in. Maybe he was in the rest of the house, too. Will you be okay without me for a while? Rose took her daughter's hands. The woman's fingers were not, Sachs noticed, trembling in the least. Of course, I'll be fine. 
Now get going. Catch that son of a bitch. Drawing smiles from both Sachs and one of the patrol officers present. Daughter embraced mother, and Sachs walked outside to see her into a squad car and await the arrival of the CSU bus. Back in the toy room now, for the comfort of it, working on the Warren's gift for my brother. I'm making it of teak, difficult wood, therefore it's more challenging, therefore the end result will make me particularly proud. The news is on, and I've learned that I did not, in fact, incinerate Red's mother. I know this not because she was mentioned, but because of the story that the electric grid in that part of Brooklyn went down briefly. Of course, Red the shopper did that. She or her police friend figured out what I was going to do and pulled the plug. Smart. Oh, they are so very smart. The other story, being reported to death, I call TV news Humpty Dumpty. Every report is breaking. It was about a string of serious car accidents, surely a co-inky-dink, one of my brother's favorite words. That had nothing to do with the grid glitch. The accidents weren't related to the stoplights going out. No, the carnage was thanks exclusively to moi and the lovely data-wise 5,000s. I'm surprised no clever reporters have brought up everybody's favorite target, the smart controller. Wasn't sure my escape plan would work. I've never tried hacking a car. Todd taught me how, when it wasn't helpful for my mission at the time. I'd thought the cloud system in vehicles was used just for diagnostics. Or you lose your key and need to start it, you call an 800 number the car company provides and tell them what happened, give them a code. They can start your car and disable the steering wheel lock. But oh, no, you can do all sorts of wonderful things. Cruise control, brakes. The problem was that I had no way of knowing which cars in Brooklyn had a date it was. Maybe a lot, maybe few. Few, it turned out. Walking quickly away from Rose's townhouse, hearing sirens, I decided they might signal visitors coming just for me. So I began running the automotive controller software. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Until finally, from about a block away from where I was, I heard the huge roar of an auto engine revving high, followed ten seconds later by a massive crunch. Traffic began backing up immediately. Wonderful, I'm actually smiling at the memory. A few blocks farther along, I heard another hit. Literally. It turned out to be a lovely rear-ender. I stopped a car mid-block. One Japanese import versus one cement truck. Guess who won? A quarter mile east, one more. Nothing for a few minutes, but finally another car on the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. A stretch limo. I later learned. So, a nice new trick I've learned. A shame Red drives such an antique car. Would be fitting for her to break her bones in an auto crash. Well, there'll be other options for my friend. Now peering through the loop, I examine the Warren skiff. The boat is done. I wrap it carefully and set it aside. Then I turn back to the diary and begin to transcribe. The graduation party, Frank and Sam's and mine, maybe 40 people there. The sports crowd, pretty nice, most of them. A few look at me like, him? But mostly nobody stares, nobody whispers. And I'm playing music. Took me like ages to try to figure out what to play, what everybody'd like. And Sam says, come on back here. And in the parlor or den, there's Karen DeWitt, who smiles at me. I've seen Karen. She's a junior and is sort of pretty, skinny too, but not like me. Her nose is big, but 
Who am I to talk? The parlor's dark, and she starts touching me on the shoulder and arm, and I'm like, what is this? Only I know, of course, what it is, even though I never thought this would happen, at least not for years, even though half the guys in the class have been laid. And she unzips me and does what she does with her mouth. Then some other people come into the parlor, and Karen says, let's get out of here, there's a bedroom over there. She's going to pee, and then I'll meet her, and we can do it. So I wait a few minutes, and she calls me into the room, and it's dark, and there she is, no clothes, bent over the bed. And I start to do it. I'm inside her and everything. And then, no, 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 lights come on. And there's Sam and Frank and Karen, only she's not the one on the bed. The person bent over the bed is beautiful Cindy Hansen, with her jeans down and panties down, and she's passed out, sheet around her mouth all wet. She's been drooling. And Sam is taking pictures of me and Cindy with a Polaroid, getting it all, her drugged, sleepy face and my string bean body and my, you know. Other people, too, are there, laughing and laughing. I'm grabbing clothes and putting them back on and crying, what are you doing, what are you doing, what are you doing? Frank and Sam are looking over the pictures and laughing ever harder, and one of them says, hey, you're a natural-born porn star, string bean. Frank, still laughing hard, lifts up Cindy's head by her hair. You like it after all, bitch? I got it then. Remembering them coming out of Cindy's house a month ago. Seeing them on my secret route home, talking to them for the first time. Cindy had told them no. No screwing, no blowjob, get out of my house, or something. And that's when they thought of it. Seeing me. How to get even with Cindy Hansen. The epic was a lie. The alien quest was a lie. Music at the party was a lie. All of it, a lie. Chapter 46 Amelia Sachs entered the parlor, set down the evidence cartons gathered at her mother's townhouse, and walked straight up to Juliet Archer. Threw her arms around the surprised woman, nearly dislodging the wrist strapped to the storm arrow's armrest. I, the woman began, thank you. You saved my mother's life. We all did, Archer said. But, Rhyme said, she's the one who came up with the blackout strategy. I don't know how to thank you. A shrug, similar to the ones Rhyme was capable of. Sachs looked from the intern to Rhyme. You two make a good team. Rhyme, with typically little patience for the sentimental or the irrelevant, asked Mel Cooper, what's the latest? The tech was just hanging up the phone from a conversation with someone in the traffic division. He explained that there'd been no fatalities. The closest brush with death had been a doctor, whose sedan crashed into the rear end of a Toyota and ruptured the gas tank. He and the other driver were inundated with fuel, but pulled out by a passers-by before the two cars vanished in flames. To be doubly safe, the doctor had stripped naked in the middle of the street, flinging his drenched clothing away. A half-dozen people, however, had been badly injured. Rhyme now called Rodney Sarnick to ask about the incident. Any way to trace the signal? The computer cop went into a long explanation about cell towers, public Wi-Fi, and VPNs. Rodney, sorry, the answer's no. He disconnected. One hell of a weapon, Sachs said to Rhyme and Archer. Salito downtown called and reported that everyone on the team and their family members was now under protective detail. 
It's UAC prioritized, he muttered. Rhyme had given up trying to stay on top of New York City Police Department shorthand. Which is? It'll be in place until the asshole is caught, Salito said. Archer laughed. Saxon and Cooper were unpacking evidence she'd collected from her mother's house. The garden, the house itself, and the steps across the street, where witnesses had seen a skinny worker taking a break, reading the paper, sipping coffee. Rhyme looked around the parlor. Where the hell's the rookie? He grumbled. That other case? That's right. Sax was nodding, but offered nothing more. Somebody just find this Gutierrez and shoot him, please. For some reason, Sax smiled at this. Rhyme was not amused. Sax itemized the evidence. Not much. Wire, electrician's tape on the circuit breaker panel. He rigged a lamp with this. She held up a plastic bag with a small electric circuit board inside. When he triggered it, two wires in the lamp crossed, and that blew the breaker. It was to get Mom downstairs to the box. Ambient trace. Naturally, no friction ridges or hairs other than mine or Mom's. Some fibers. He was wearing flesh-colored cotton gloves. You found copper bits earlier, but now we have the actual wire, Cooper said. It was eight gauge, according to the American wire gauge standard, about 0.128 inch in diameter. Rhyme said, can carry pretty high voltage. What, Mel, 40 amps? That's right, at 60 degrees Celsius. What about the manufacturer? There were, Rhyme could see, letters on the black insulation. Cooper looked up the initials. Hendrix Cable, popular brand, sold a lot of places. Rhyme scoffed. Why don't perps shop at unique stores? And he used a razor knife again to strip it? Right, an electrician's tape? Probably good quality, the tech said, touching part of it with a steel needle probe. Good adhesive, strong. Cheaper tape tends to have uneven coverage, and it's thin. Burn a bit. See if we can get a brand name. After the gas chromatograph worked its magic, Cooper looked over the results and displayed them to the room on a monitor. Archer said, They seem generic. Aren't those ingredients found in every brand of electrical tape? Quantity, Rhyme said. Quantity is everything. Cooper explained further. I'm running the amounts of each of those substances through a database. Micrograms make all the difference. It should give us an answer in... Ah, there we go now. It's one of these. On the screen, Ludlum Tape and Adhesive, Conoco Industrial Products, Hammersmith Adhesives. Good, good, Rhyme muttered. Sachs was examining the bag she'd held up earlier. The remote relay that had shorted out Rose's lights. Cooper mounted the device on the reflecting stage of a low-power microscope. They examined the monitor. He said, antenna here, he pointed. Signal comes in and closes the switch here. It's not an off-the-shelf switch. It's a component part of something else. See, the base? He fatigued through the circuit board. Got a code number on it, he announced. Rhyme hadn't been able to see it. Keeping his eyes on the monitor, Cooper touch-typed as fast as falling marbles. A moment later, they turned to the screen. Home Safe Products Atlas Garage Door Opener, Extended Reach Model. Opens the door from 50 yards. He took the switch out and threw the rest away, I'd guess. The remaining trace revealed more walnut sawdust, some glass fragments from Rose's townhouse, more glue associated with adhesive from an earlier scene. 
but nothing else new. Put everything up on the boards. Crime scene. 4218 Martin Street, Brooklyn. Offense. Attempted assault. Suspect. Unsub 40. Victim. Rose Sachs unharmed. Means of attack. Rigged circuit breaker box to electrocute. Evidence. No friction ridge, DNA. Insulation from Hendrix cable. Additional adhesive, as from earlier scene. Walnut sawdust. Glass shards associated with earlier scene, this location. Unsub wore flesh-colored cotton gloves. Electrician's tape from one of Ludlum Tape and Adhesive, Conoco Industrial Products, Hammersmith Adhesives. Home Safe Atlas Garage Door Opener. Everything common, Mel? Rhyme asked. Yep. Sold in a hundred stores in the area. Not very helpful. Two voices. But he was improvising the attack at your mother's townhouse, Sax. At the same time, Archer said, But he didn't plan your mother's attack ahead of time, Amelia. Rhyme laughed at their tripping over each other's words yet again. He explained to Sax, The unsubs planned out all the other attacks against his victims ahead of time. But he made a last-minute decision to attack your mom. He hadn't figured you'd be so persistent, so much of a risk to him. Which means he bought the tape, the electric wire, the glass, and glazing compound, and the garage door opener around the same time. Likely, some are all at the same place. It would have been smart to buy them separately over a period of days or weeks, but he didn't have a choice. He had to stop you. Archer looked over the chart. Maybe the parts for the gas bomb that he used downtown, too, to destroy Todd Williams's office. Very possibly, Rhyme said. Let's start with the garage door opener, don't you think, Sax? He'd been speaking to her. What's that? She'd been distracted, reading a text. The garage door opener. Get a list of retail locations, then canvas to see if anybody bought the other items there. Rhyme added. Start with Queens. Expand from there. Sachs called major cases and put together a canvas team to start searching for the purchases. She then disconnected and emailed them a list of the items Unsub 40 would have bought. Rhyme noted she looked out the window for a moment, then turned and walked close to him. Rhyme, you have a minute? One of those useless expressions. Why not just say, I want to talk to you? Let's lose the bystanders. But of course, he nodded. Sure. He wheeled toward her, and together they headed into the parlor across the hallway. She remained silent for a moment. He knew her well. When someone is your lover and your professional partner, there's very little psyche that remains hidden. She was not being dramatic. She was weighing what she wished to say the way one would carefully measure a drug found in a bus to most accurately determine the charges against the suspect. Sachs was certainly given to impulse in some things, but matters close to her heart were swathed in thick deliberation. She sighed and turned, then sat. There's something I have to talk to you about. Yes, go ahead. I could have told you a few days ago. I didn't. I'm not sure why I didn't. Nick is out. Corelli? Your friend. My friend, yes. He was released from prison. He contacted me. And he's well? Pretty much, physically. I'd think being inside would change you more. She shrugged, and it was clear to Rhyme she didn't want to go down this path. There's something I debated about telling you. I didn't. But now I have to. 
A preface like that, Sax? Pray continue. Sunday, 6, and Mate. Chapter 47 At 11.30 a.m., the canvas team, looking into the unsub's purchases for his improvised weapons in the attempt on Rose Sachs's life, had a hit. Rhyme was frustrated that it had taken so long, but then they'd made the discovery about the garage door opener and the other purchases only late last night, when most of the hardware stores were closed, and few opened early today, Sunday morning. Goddamn blue laws, he'd snapped. Ron Pulaski, apparently on hiatus from the Gutierrez case, had said, I don't think the Puritans have pushed through legislation about late opening times for hardware stores on the Holy Day, Lincoln. Salespeople probably just want to sleep in one day of the week. Well, they shouldn't do it when I need answers. But then Sachs got a call from one of the officers on the canvas. She sat slightly more upright as she listened. I'll put you on speaker. A click. Yes, hello. Uh, Jim Cavanaugh, major cases support. Officer, Rhyme said. This is Lincoln Rhyme. Detective Sachs told me you're working the case. An honor, sir. Okay, sure. Well, what do you have? A store on Staten Island. So, not Queens. Archer gave Rhyme a wry smile. With two question marks. The manager said a man fitting the description of the unsub comes in two days ago wanted a garage door opener that would work at a distance of about 35 feet, maybe more. Also bought glass, glazing compound, electrician's tape, and some wire, all matching the products you mentioned. Here's hoping, Rhyme asked. Credit card? Cash, of course. Did the manager know anything about him? Name, where he lives? Not that, but he did find out a few things, Captain. Lincoln is fine, go on. The unsub saw some tools the store had for sale and asked about them. They were specialized ones, like the kind used for crafts. Sachs asked, Crafts? What sort of crafts? Hobbies, model airplanes, things like that. Razor knives and saws and very small sanders. He bought a set of miniature clamps. He'd been looking for ones like them. The store he usually shops at didn't have them in stock. Good, I like usually. That means he's a regular. Did he mention the name? No, just said it was in Queens. Rhyme shouted. Somebody find me all the craft stores in Queens, now. Thanks, officer. Sachs disconnected the call. A moment later, a map was on the biggest of the monitors. There were 16 craft stores indicated in the borough of Queens. Which one? Rhyme muttered. Sachs leaned forward, her hand on the back of his chair. She pointed. That one. How do you know? because it's three subway stops away from the MTA station near the White Castle in Queens, where he always went for lunch after shopping. Crafts for Everyone didn't quite live up to its name. No yarn, no floral art foam, no finger paints. But if you wanted to build model ships or spacecraft or dollhouse furniture, this was your emporium. Fragrant with the smell of paint and wood and cleansers, the shop featured jam-packed shelves filled with supplies and tools. More Dremel power tools and balsa wood than Amelia Sachs had ever seen in one place. A lot of Star Wars characters, creatures and vehicles. Star Trek, too. She showed her gold shield to the young man behind the counter. Good-looking. More like an athlete than a, well, 
clerk in a nerd store. Yes? His voice did, however, crack. She explained she was trying to find someone for questioning in connection with a series of crimes. She described the unsub, asked if anyone had recently bought mahogany, walnut, bond strong, and braden rich coat varnish, craft tools too. He'd be smart, Sachs said, well-spoken. Thinking of the unsub's attempts to obscure his intelligence and his rants against consumerism. Well, you know, the clerk said, swallowed, and continued. There is somebody. But he's quiet, polite. I can't imagine he'd do anything wrong. What's his name? I just know his first name, Vernon. He fits the description. Tall and thin, yeah, kind of weird. Any credit card receipts? He always pays cash. She then asked, you have any idea where he lives? Manhattan, I think in Chelsea. He mentioned that once. How often does he come in? Every couple of weeks. No phone number he left for special orders? No, sorry. Now you're asking me. He always seemed kind of paranoid, you know? Like he didn't want to give away too much. She handed him a card and asked him to call her if this Vernon returned. No more 911 intermediaries. She walked around a father and son poring over a carve-your-own-Jedi display and left the store. Sachs dropped into the front passenger seat of the unmarked car that had accompanied her there. The detective from the local precinct, an attractive Latina, asked, Success? Yes and no. The perp's name is Vernon, nor their name yet. I want you to stay here on the chance he comes back. The kid, the clerk, was so nervous all Vernon would have to do was look at him and the killer would know something was up. Sure, Amelia. She thought now about how to narrow down an address in the relatively large neighborhood of Chelsea. She spun the detective's computer around and typed real estate databases. No one with the first name Vernon owned property in Chelsea, and those two people with that name on deed records were much older than the perp, and both were married, a status that seemed extremely unlikely for this type of perp. So if the kid was right about the name their perp would be renting. An idea occurred to her. She ran stats in Chelsea to see about recent crimes. Something interesting turned up. A homicide just reported yesterday on West 22nd Street. A man named Edwin Boyle, a printing company employee, had been killed and his body shoved into a storage cabinet in an abandoned warehouse. His wallet and cash were still in his possession. Only his phone was missing. The cause of death was blunt force trauma. She called the medical examiner's office and got through right away. She identified herself. Hi, detective, said the woman technician. What do you need? That homicide, Boyle, yesterday, Chelsea. You have anything more on the blunt force? Type of weapon? Hold on, I'll check. I didn't do the PM. A few moments later, she came back on the line. I have it here. Funny, it's similar to another PM we handled not long ago. Something you don't see very often, Sachs said. Murder weapon was a ball-peen hammer? The tech barked a laugh. Sherlock Holmes, how'd you know that? Can't tell, detective. He's got shutters on the bedroom window. Metal, have to be. Can't read through them, okay? Near an ESU van parked up the street from the Target apartment, Amelia Sachs spoke into her stalk mouthpiece in reply. Any light getting through? The S&S officer was on the roof opposite, 
his sophisticated equipment aimed at the second-floor, two-bedroom apartment on West 22nd Street. Negative, detective. No thermal readings. But with the shutters, he could have a candlelit card game going on in there. Everybody's smoking cigars, and I couldn't tell you. Kay. Roger. The unsub was no longer one. He was an identified subject. Vernon Griffith, 35, was a resident of New York. He'd owned a house on Long Island, which he'd inherited and recently sold. He'd been renting here in Chelsea for about a year. Some juvie offenses for schoolyard fights, but no rap sheet as an adult. And curiously, no history of social activism, until he started using consumer products a few days ago to murder the good citizens of the city of New York as the people's guardian. Edwin Boyle had been his neighbor until, for reasons yet unknown, Griffith had hammered him to death a few blocks away, in the same inelegant manner as he had Todd Williams. We're locked down, the whole block. This from Bo Howman, head of the NYPD's emergency service unit, the city's SWAT team. The lean, grizzled man with an etched face and sacks looked over a layout of the apartment building on his laptop. The schematic had come from the Department of Buildings and was old, about ten years, but New York City apartments rarely underwent major internal renovation. Landlords wouldn't want to pay for that. Only when eyeing the gold mine of converting a building to co-ops or condominiums did the owners get out the checkbooks for structural improvement. Don't have much choice, Howman said, meaning there was essentially only one strategy for entry to Collar Griffith. There was a single entrance into the building from 22nd Street and one door in the back alley. Griffith's apartment itself had one door, opening onto the living room. There were two bedrooms opposite the entry door, and a small kitchen to the right. Howman called a half dozen officers over. Like Sachs, they were in tactical outfits, helmets, gloves, Kevlar vests. Tapping the computer screen, he said, Three friendlies in the back, four-man entry through his front door. I'm one of them, Sachs said. Four-person entry through his front door. Howman corrected to smiles. One breacher, other three in serially. One right, one left, one center covering. The weapons they'd be armed with were the same as the one that had been used to kill Osama bin Laden. H&K 416s. This model was the D14.5RS carbine, the numbers referring to the length in inches of the barrel. They acknowledged the instructions blandly, as if their boss were giving them details of a new coffee break plan at the office. To them, this was all in a day's work. For Sachs, though, she was alive, completely attuned to the moment. Good at crime scene work, yes. She enjoyed the mind game of tricking evidence to life. But there was nothing like a dynamic entry. It was a high unlike anything else she'd experienced. Let's move, she said. Howman nodded in confirmation and the teams formed up. In five minutes, they were sprinting along the sidewalk, motioning bystanders to leave the area. With a screw-end lock pop, one officer opened the front door of the building in a single deft pull, and Sachs and the other three streamed inside. Through the lobby and corridor to Griffith's unit. With hand signals, Sachs stopped the team fast. She pointed to the video camera above the suspect's door. All four officers moved back, out of view of the lens. On the radio. Team B in position in alley, it's clear. Roger, said the Team A leader, a lean, dark-complected man whose name was Heller. 
He was beside Sachs. He's got a camera above the door. We'll have to go in fast. The conversation occurred in whispers and was delivered through state-of-the-art headsets and microphones. Normally, they'd move silently up on their rubber-soled boots. Then the breaching officer would wait while one cop slid a tiny camera on a cable under the door. But now, with the perp surveillance of them a possibility, they'd have to race to the door and move in fast. Heller pointed to Sachs and to the right, then to another officer and aimed a thumb to left. Then to himself and moved his hand up and down, like a priest offering a blessing, meaning he'd take the center. Sachs, breathing hard, nodded. The breacher lifted the battering ram, a four-foot piece of iron from his canvas bag. At a nod from Heller, all four ran to Griffith's apartment. The breaching officer slammed the metal hard into the knob and lock plate, and the door crashed inward. He stepped back and unslung his H&K. The three other officers stepped inside. Sachs and the other flank officer spreading out, sweeping their weapons around the sparsely furnished room. Kitchen clear! Living room clear! The left bedroom door was partially open. Heller and the other officer moved forward, Sachs covering. They entered the small room. Heller called, left bedroom, clear. They returned and approached the closed door of the front bedroom, which had both a number padlock and a deadbolt. Heller said, S&S report, the front bedroom sealed. We're about to enter. Any sign of life? K. Still can't tell, sir. Too well shielded. K. Heller regarded the number lock knob. There would be no element of surprise now after their noisy entry, so Heller pounded on the door and said, NYPD, is anyone in there? Nothing. Again. Then he motioned over to the officer with the stalk camera. He tried to jimmy it under the door, but the gap was too small. The device wouldn't fit. This doorway was narrower. Only one officer could go in at a time. Heller pointed to himself and held up a single finger. To Sachs, two. The other officer, three. Then he motioned the breacher forward. The burly cop arrived with his ram, and they got ready for the final stage of the entry. Chapter 48 Weird. I'd just been writing in my diary, the worst day. That had been in the past that day, but now today was just as bad. Not worst, no, because I hadn't been arrested, haven't been shot to death by Red and the shoppers, but pretty damn bad. I've known the people's guardian couldn't go on forever, but I thought I could slip away from the city and remain anonymous, get on with my life. Now they have my name. I'm wheeling two suitcases, a backpack holding my most important worldly possessions, some of my miniatures, the diary, some photos, clothes, my size, hard to find, my hammer, my wonderful Japanese razor saw, a few other things. Lucky, lucky, just a half hour ago, I was back home, Chelsea, thinking of my next visit to a shopper, planning to scald, when I got, imagine this, a call. Vernon, listen, the crackly-voiced kid from Crafts for Everyone. What's wrong? I asked him, because something was wrong. Listen, the police were just here. Police? Asking about things you bought. They found some notes with your name on them. I didn't say anything. The kid was lying. 
There was no reason there'd be any notes with my name on them. He sold me out. They didn't find your last name, but... But yeah. Thanks. I hung up and began to pack. Had to leave fast. The kid at the craft store would die. And painfully. He was a shopper, after all. I thought he was a friend. But there's no time to worry about that now. I finished packing, rigged some surprises for Red and the shoppers who'd be there soon enough. Now, head down, slumping to hide the sack of bones height, I'm heading downtown with two big suitcases like a tourist from Finland who's just arrived at the Port Authority and needs a hostel room. Appropriately, I find such a place now. Well, cheap hotel, not hostel. And I step inside, inquire about rates, and when the desk clerk steps away, I go to the bell captain and check my bags, telling him my flight's not till this evening. He cares about the five dollars more than the explanation. And I leave again carrying only my backpack. In 20 minutes, I'm at my destination, an apartment not dissimilar to mine, which makes me sad. My womb in Chelsea, my fish, my toy room, all gone, everything ruined, my whole life. Red did it, of course. I shiver with fury. At least anybody slipping into the toy room will get a lovely surprise. I hope Red's the first one in. Now I stare up at the dirty white facade for a moment, then look around. No one to notice me. I hit the intercom button. The superintendent was in his basement unit, taking care of his own plumbing for a change, a toilet issue, when he heard a thud upstairs. And then a scrabbling sound. Sal wasn't sure what a scrabble actually sounded like, a big crab from a horror film, maybe? Somebody on all fours scurrying away from a spider? Who knew? But that was the word that came to mind. He returned to fixing the chain to the ball cock and got it snapped into place. Just as he did, there was another thud. More of a crash of things falling, and then voices, loud. He rose, wiped his hands, and walked to the open back window. The voices from the apartment directly above his were more or less distinct, I don't, I don't, you did that? You did what you're telling me, Vernon? I had to, please, we have to go now. Are you, Vernon, listen to what you're saying. Alicia Morgan, the occupant of 1D, was crying. She was one of the better tenants, quiet, paid on time, timid, something fragile about her. Was this her boyfriend? Sal had never seen her with anybody. What was the fight about, he wondered. She didn't seem like the sort who would fight with anyone. Fragile. The man, Vernon, apparently, said in a shaky voice, I shared things with you, private things. I've never done that with anybody. Not this. You didn't tell me you'd done this. You hurt people. Does it matter? The man's voice wasn't much lower than hers. It sounded weird, but he could hear the anger in it. It's for a good cause. Vernon, Jesus, of course it matters. How can you? I thought you'd understand. Now the voice was sing-song and all the more threatening for it. We were alike, you and me. We were so much alike, or that's the way you wanted it to seem. We've known each other for a month, Vernon, a month. I've stayed over once. That's all I mean to you? There was a huge crash. You're one of them, he shouted. You're a shopper. You're no better than any of them. Shopper, Sal wondered. He didn't get exactly what was going on, but he was growing quite concerned with the escalating dispute. 
Alicia was sobbing now. You just told me you've killed some people, and you expect me to go away with you? Oh, hell, killed somebody? Sal fished out his mobile. Before he could hit 911, Alicia screamed, a sound that was cut short in a grunt. Another thud as she, or her body, hit the floor. No, came her voice. Don't, Vernon, please, don't, don't hurt me. Another scream. Then Sal was moving, grabbing his aluminum baseball bat. He flung open his door and charged up the stairs to Alicia's apartment. He used his master key to open the door and he shoved inside. The knob smacked the wall so hard it dug a crater in the plaster. Panting from the sprint, Sal stared wide-eyed. Jesus. The tenant lay on the floor, a huge man standing over her. Easily six, three, or four, skinny, sick-looking. He'd hit her in the face, which was bleeding from her cheek, swollen badly. Tears poured as she sobbed and held up her hands to protect herself, uselessly, from what he held. A ball-peen hammer, poised over his head, about to crack her skull open. The attacker spun around and stared at the super with mad, furious eyes. Who are you? What are you doing here? Asshole! Drop it! Sal snapped, nodding at the hammer and brandishing the bat. He outweighed the guy by 30 pounds, even if he was six inches shorter. The assailant squinted and looked from the super to Alicia and then back again. His breath hissed from his throat as he drew back and flung the hammer towards Sal, who dropped to his knees to avoid it. The scrawny man grabbed a backpack and ran to the open rear window, tossed the bag out, and jumped out after it. The breacher picked up the battering ram, and Heller again pointed out the order of entry into Griffith's front bedroom, the one protected by the number lock. They all nodded. Sachs set down the H&K submachine gun and drew her pistol. The choice of weapons was always the tactical officers to make. She felt more comfortable with a handgun in a confined space. The breacher was drawing back the ram when Sachs held up a hand. Wait! Heller turned. I think he's rigged something. A trap. It's his style. Use that, she said, pointing into the breaching officer's canvas bag. Heller looked down. He nodded and the officer withdrew the small chainsaw. Sachs pulled a flashbang stun grenade from her pocket, nodded. The breacher fired up the growly tool and sliced a two-by-four-foot hole in the door, kicked in the cut piece. Sachs pitched in the live grenade, and after the stunning explosion, disorienting but not lethal, Heller and Sachs, remaining outside still, went to their knees, pointing their weapons and flashlights inside. Scanning. The room was empty of humans, but it was booby-trapped. Ah, Heller was pointing to a piece of thin wire that was attached to the inside doorknob. If they'd bashed the door in, it would have slackened the wire and released a gallon milk jug, cut in half horizontally, filled with what seemed to be gasoline, spilling the contents onto a hot plate that sat smoking on a workbench by the window, sealed by thick shutters. The officers entered and dismantled the device. Then they cleared the room, the connected bathroom, too. Heller radioed Hammond. Team A, premises secure, no hostile. Team B, report. Team B leader to Team A leader, no hostiles in back. We'll sweep the other apartments. K, roger. Sachs, 
she heard through her earpiece. Surprised to hear Rhyme's calm voice. She hadn't known he was patched into the tactical frequency. Rhyme. He's gone. Rabbited. We should have thrown the crafts for everyone guy in protective detention to keep him from talking. That's how Griffith got tipped off, I'm sure. The nature of democracy, Sax. You can't tie up and gag everybody who ought to be tied up and gagged. Well, she said, we've got a pristine scene. When he left, he didn't take much. We'll find something here. We'll get him. Walk the grid, Sax, and get back soon. Chapter 49 An hour later, Sax was on the doorstep of Vernon Griffith's apartment, sweating in the Tyvek bodysuit, reading aloud from a notebook. It's society that's the problem. They want to consume and consume and consume, but they don't have any idea what that means. Collecting objects, collecting things is what we focus on. In other words, dinner should be about people, families getting together to commune at the end of a workday. It's not about having the best oven, the best food processor, the best blender, the best coffee maker. We focus on those things, not on our friends, not on our family. You still there, Rhyme? Somewhat. It's a rant, like the others. The People's Guardian. It's his full manifesto. The title's The Steel Kiss. Poetic, she reflected. She put the book back into an evidence bag. Got lots of trace, some paperwork. Lon's running vitals. Sold his family house in Manhasset. No other residences show up positive at this point. Lon will have some people follow the public records. Anybody else's friction ridges? One more than others. A woman's, I'd guess. Or a small man's, but probably a woman's. I found shoulder-length blonde hairs. Seemed to be dyed blonde with traces of gray. And the alternative light source? He had a pretty active sex life. I mean, busy boy. The ALS imaged bodily fluids that would otherwise have been invisible. So he has a girlfriend. But no evidence that she lived here. No women's clothing or cosmetics, toiletries. He may be there now, Rhyme muttered. Wonder where the hell she is. Get the prince back here ASAP, Sax. We'll IAFIS them. I want to move. I'll be a half hour. Just after she disconnected, her phone rang. She recognized the number from NYPD dispatch. Detective Sachs, Amelia, it's Jen Cotter. Wanted you to know there was a 911 of an assault in Midtown West. Vic's hurt, but will live. Responding says she's ID'd her attacker, Vernon Griffith. Well, who's the Vic? Alicia Morgan, 41. Don't know the exact relationship with the perp, but they knew each other. She there at the hospital? Still there, far as I know. This just happened. The perp? Got away. Give me the address. 432 West 39 Street. Tell the respondings I'm on my way. I want to talk to the Vic. If they take her to a hospital, let me know which one. Will do. Sachs reported the developments to Rhyme and hurried to her car. Fifteen minutes later, Sachs and Halman's tack teams were parked at the corner of 8th Avenue and 39th, before a five-story apartment building. It was unlikely Griffith was anywhere near here, but he was obviously unstable, if not psychotic, and he might very well have stayed around after the assault, hence the firepower. Two EMTs, a detective in a uniform, were standing over a slim woman in her early forties lying on a gurney. Her face was bandaged and bloody. Her eyes were red from crying, and she had an expression that Sachs could describe only as sorrowful bewilderment. 
Alicia Morgan? Sachs asked. The victim nodded, then winced from the pain. I'm Detective Sachs. How are you feeling? The woman stared at her. I... What? Sachs displayed her shield. How are you? Her voice was a whisper. It hurts. Really hurts. I I'm dizzy. A glance at one of the EMTs, a solid African-American. He hit her with his fist at least once, pretty bad. Probably a fracture and a concussion. We'll need x-rays. We'll take her in now. As they wheeled her to the ambulance, Sachs asked, How did you know Vernon? We went out some. Did he really kill those people? He did, yes. Alicia cried softly. He was gonna kill me, too. Do you know why? She started to shake her head and then gasped at the pain. He just showed up and wanted me to go away with him. He told me he was the one who was in the news, who killed the man in the escalator and burned up that other one in the gas explosion. I thought it was a joke at first, but no, he meant it. Like it wouldn't matter to me that he was a killer. She closed her eyes and winced, and carefully wiped tears. When I said no, I wouldn't go away, he snapped. He started to beat me, and then he got a hammer. He wanted to kill me with it. Sal showed up just in time, the super. He had a baseball bat. He saved my life. Sachs noticed some scars on the woman's neck, and her arm was slightly deformed, as if from a bad break. Maybe the victim of an assault some time ago. Domestic abuse, she wondered. Does Vernon own or have access to a car? Griffith didn't have one registered in New York. No, he uses cabs mostly, wiping tears away. And no idea about places he'd go? Her wide eyes stared at Sachs. He was so nice to me. He was so gentle. More tears. I, Alicia, I'm sorry, Sachs said, pressing. I need as much information as you can give us. Any other residences or places he'd go? He had a house on Long Island, Manhasset, I think. But I think he sold it. He never mentioned any place else. No, I don't know where he'd go. They arrived at the ambulance. Detective, we'd better get her in now. Which hospital? We'll do Bellevue. Sachs took out one of her cards, circled her number and added rhymes, as well as his address on the back. She gave it to Alicia. When you feel up to it, we'll need to talk to you some more. Sachs was confident the woman had insights that could help them find their prey. Okay, she whispered breathed deeply. Sure, okay. The ambulance doors shut, and a moment later the vehicle took off through traffic, the siren pulsing urgently. Sachs walked up to Bo Howman and reported what she'd learned, which wasn't much. He, in turn, told her that canvassing had revealed no sightings. He had a 15-minute lead, the ASU man said. How far does that buy you in the city? Pretty damn far, she muttered and Sachs walked to the superintendent, Sal, sitting on the stoop to interview him. He was a good-looking Italian-American, thick black hair, solid muscles, clean-shaven. Reporters were shooting pictures and asking him to hold up the baseball bat with which he'd driven off the killer. Sachs could picture the punning headline already. Hero Super, Bats a Thousand. Chapter 50
Rhyme watched Amelia Sachs cart in the evidence from Vernon Griffith's apartment. She had yet to search Alicia Morgan's place in the warehouse where Griffith had bludgeoned to death his neighbor Boyle, but Rhyme wanted to get started on the clues from what was probably the most fruitful scene that would lead to his whereabouts, his apartment in Chelsea. She walked to the evidence tables and, pulling on blue gloves, began to organize the evidence she and the ECTs had collected. Juliet Archer, too, was here, though Cooper was absent. Rhyme said to Sachs, Mel's gonna be a couple of hours, some terrorist thing the FBI wanted him to look in on, but we can get started. Any more word on Alicia? She should be released soon. A fractured cheekbone, loose tooth, concussion. She's shaken up but willing to talk. As one would expect when your boyfriend tries to beat you to death with a hammer. Rhyme examined the evidence collected at Griffith's apartment. Unlike from the earlier scenes, here was a trove. But first, the documentation, Rhyme said. Any luck with real property? Tickets to anywhere regularly? Plane or train? Sachs reported that the findings were negative so far. I've looked over banking and financial information. He'd sold the house on Long Island, but there was no record of him buying another place. Banks and credit card companies, insurance, taxes, they all sent statements and correspondence to a P.O. box in Manhattan. He had a business, selling his miniatures and dollhouse furniture, but it was handled out of his apartment, not from an office or workshop. Archer noted a slip of paper in a clear plastic envelope. This could be another potential victim, in Scarsdale. The upscale suburb north of New York City was undoubtedly filled with many high-end products equipped with DataWise 5000 controllers and owned by the rich consumers that Vernon Griffith despised. Archer was reading from the note. Henderson Comfort Zone Deluxe Water Heater. And Rhyme cross-referenced the list of products that had data-wise controllers inside. Yes, the water heater was one of them. Who lives there? No indication from the note. Just had the address at this point. Griffith's been ID'd, so I doubt he'll go for another attack. But on the other hand, he's pretty fanatical, so who knows? Rhyme asked Sachs to call Westchester County and have troopers stake out the house. And find out who lives there, Sachs. She did so, searching records in DMV. A moment later, she had the answer. William Mayer, a hedge fund manager. He was a friend of the governor, and there were a few articles about him that hinted at political aspirations. Archer said, Water heater? What was he going to do, do you think? Turn the heat up and scald somebody to death in the shower? Todd Williams blogged about something like that, remember? Or maybe build up the pressure and close a valve so that when somebody goes down to see what's wrong, it blows up. Gallons of 200-degree water? Jesus. She wheeled closer and looked over the half-dozen plastic bags of miniatures. Furniture, baby carriages, clock, Victorian house. They were very well made. Rhyme, too, studied them. He's very good. Let's see if he took classes anywhere. Sachs had thought of this, it seemed. I've got a body at 1PP checking out Griffith's bio in depth. They might turn up a workshop or two he went to. School he studied at recently. Then Sachs was frowning. She picked up a small toy. Something familiar about this. What is it? Rhyme squinted at the toy. Looks like a caisson. A wagon artillery soldiers tow along with the cannon. Holds the shells. The song, that line, 
and the caissons go rolling along. Sachs studied it closely. Rhyme said nothing more. He let her thoughts play out on their own. Archer, too, he noted, held back any questions. Finally, Sachs, still studying the caisson, said, It's connected to a case. The past couple of months. But not on sub-40? No. It seemed that a thought hovered and flitted away, a hiss of breath at the frustration. Might have been one of mine. Might have been another in major cases, and I saw the file.